Welcome to a special presentation of Ingray Highlands This Week podcast. The Federal All Candidates Meeting, held at the Markdale Arena on September the 26th, 2019. It's presented here in a completely unabridged format. We hope you enjoy this special presentation, and we look forward to you favouring us with a response by email, feedback at ingrayhighlandsthisweek.ca or a call on our voicemail at 519-900-8905. Please visit the ingrayhighlandsthisweek.ca site to view show notes, leave a comment, and listen to any extended material. You'll also find links to our social media presence where you can engage further with the show. Our scores are skillfully composed and generously provided by Al Halliday of Arkham Dispatch and Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. In Grey Highlands This Week is published by the Grey Highlands Chamber of Commerce and is licensed under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 International License. Tonight we have an evening with the federal candidates. They're all at the front there. They will be introduced later. They're all smiling. They all have their own microphones. But before we get too far in, uh, I want to say that this event tonight, we would like to formally recognize that we are meeting on the Anishinaabe traditional territory. I think it's appropriate tonight to sing O Canada since we have a flag flying there. So I think... Uh, my friend and your friend, Michelle Patey, will stand and lead us in Okan. Oh, Canada, our home and native land, true patriot love in all our sons' commands, with That was some great harmonies. I thank everybody for participating in singing O Canada. Thanks, Michelle. It's always getting started on those little projects that are important, uh, like hitting the right note to start. I never do. So uh, tonight, I want to thank our candidates for coming, all six of them. 
and our audience for coming. It's really overwhelming. I'm really pleased and surprised that we're filling the house tonight. We have a capacity of 225, uh, so, but I think we're very close to that. We set up 150 chairs. We sent out some other ones. So I want to introduce a little bit about our chamber team. I want to introduce our chamber office manager, Kate Fitzpatrick. She's our chief uh, ticket seller as well and, and hard worker, and she's in our office in Markdale, and please come and visit her anytime you want. She's a wealth of knowledge. Also want to uh, thank some of our members that are here, here tonight. Michelle, you heard, and Darren, our timer, and our, our videographer, our video guy. We have a videographer, which we'll get to later. And uh, we have a fund uh, to support these kind of events. We have a, a fundraiser, which is this year, Gas for Year. So to feel free to uh, meet with uh, Lynn Silverton, one of our members, honorary members of the board. We got uh, Tom Allwood, and we've got Jim Halliday. And uh, did I miss anybody? Well, anyhow. Hmm? Sorry? Rod Gillespie. Hey, did you bring my tomatoes? <laughs> so, your chamber, I want you to know, uh, represents over 115 businesses and services in Greyhounds. So, I also want to introduce, before we get into other things, that we've got Tim Riley. He's our sound engineer. We've got the, uh, we've got also, he's with Leaking Ambience Studios. Someday you may understand what that means. Could took me a while. We've also got uh, Jeff Bose, uh, who set up this today, and we've also got Greg Ha from our Grey Highlands Chamber, our Grey Highlands uh, Channel, uh, cultural channel. There we are. I don't know if Michelle Harris is here, but I saw Kristen Howe. So thank you for the municipality for helping fund uh, some of the sound equipment, and also uh, Robert Intero from. The museum, the museum, rather, who's also lent us sound equipment. So, but not least, I want to introduce Ray Robertson, our moderator. And Ray, it's your show from now on. Please stand up and, and welcome Ray and welcome to all the candidates. Thank you very much, uh, Stuart, or, uh, Stuart, for that introduction and uh, for your welcome. I, I wasn't expecting that. I didn't realize I was just King Tut here. I was uh, supposed to just be the moderator. So anyway, we'll uh, and, and look forward to your working with this evening. Certainly, this is a really important part of our democratic structure here and a great opportunity to meet the candidates and uh, sort of get to know a little bit about them and help you make a really well-informed decision when it comes to the 21st of October. Certainly encourage everybody to think about between now and then and uh, make that decision. And anyone who doesn't come out on the 22nd or 21st will never be able to complain about anything that the government does wrong. So uh, if everybody think about that, say, if I don't vote, I can't complain about anything, uh, then you'll feel a whole lot better about it. It is my pleasure to introduce the, uh, the six candidates uh, uh, on the front there. And I'm going to introduce them, uh, just their name. They will introduce themselves more fully later. But I'm going to start on my extreme left at the far end. The ladies are always first. Um, we have Danielle Valaquet from the Green Party. Uh, 
I was going to say, maybe you can stand up, Danielle, and uh, maybe if you just hold your applause until we get to the end, because otherwise there's going to be so much time taken up with all this applause, it's going to eat into your question time. So we'll have them all stand. After I introduce them, you can show your appreciation to the, to the candidates then. Next, we have uh, Bill Townsend, representing the People's Party of Canada. Bill? People didn't hear. Is the mic not working? No applause till we're done. Okay, uh, next uh, to them is... Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Chris Stephen, representing the NDP. Sorry, Chris. No, no. <laughs> next, we have Bill Townsend. No, sorry, we have Dan Little, representing the Libertarian Party. I'm not used to going backwards. We have uh, Alex Ruff. Sorry, Alex. Alex Ruff from the Progressive Conservative Party. Welcome, Alex. Next, we have Dan Little, representing the Libertarian Party. Sorry about that. And then last but not least is De uh, Michael Dentant, representing the Liberal Party. These are your candidates. I'll be right to you. So I just want to tell the process here this evening. Uh, the candidates all received eight questions that were developed by the Chamber of Commerce uh, through consultation with their members and whatnot, and sort of a broad range of que uh, questions. We have a broad range of, of people in the audience, uh, from farmers to businessmen of, of various types, uh, retirees, uh, new people to their community too. So quite a large range of, of, of people here in the audience. So uh, we've hopefully got questions that will sort of touch a, a note with everybody here tonight. These questions, we will each candidate will have five minutes to uh, introduce themselves first of all, and then we'll move on to the eight questions that they were circulated to. So um, uh, maybe start off with uh, Michael at this time in, in alphabetical order, uh, and he can uh, start with first uh, uh, introducing himself. Five minutes. At the end of four minutes, uh, uh, Darren will give you the signal. At the end of five minutes, uh, your microphone will be disconnected. <laughs> Good evening, and thank you all for coming. And uh, thanks to the Gray Highlands Chamber for hosting us. Fair enough. Can I stand? Yeah. For months now, since uh, last December... I've been speaking with people across our riding about issues that concern you in this campaign. I've knocked on thousands of doors. And funnily enough, not a single person I've spoken with, not one, has said that what they really want to hear is more personal insults flying back and forth between the camps. People are fed up with that. They want to know who we are and what we're going to do for them and their families and for the community. And rightly so. My dad was a teacher, my mom a nurse, all four of my grandparents were farmers. The concerns you have, health care, education, job security, housing, a decent pension, climate change, are the same ones I have. For three generations, the Matthews family on my mom's side scratched out a living on 100 acres in the Irish block east of Own Sound. My grandma, Blanche Matthews, taught in the one-room school in the block, and my mom and dad, Andre and Shirley, were married at St. Michael's Church in the block 
1962. My dad's family had left Belgium in the 50s because Paul and Yvonne Dentant did not want their children to live through another European war. They settled in Woodstock and they raised beef cattle. I worked on the farm every summer as a kid, and the challenges my grandpa faced back then, though certainly difficult, seemed simpler than the ones that rural people face today. These are the big challenges that I keep hearing about at the door. Making sure that residents and businesses of Bruce Gray owned Sound have access to reliable high-speed internet, which is the gateway to the world market for businesses large and small. How to do a better job of retraining workers in a fast-changing economy where manufacturing jobs are either disappearing or moving to new industries. How to make more and smaller farms economically viable so more families can keep their farms. Helping secure the future of workers at anchor employers like Chapman's Ice Cream by improving transportation corridors and housing options for families. In other words, the big challenges that I see in every sector are the ones that affect basic quality of life, health, security, and standard of living. That is what I'd like to talk about tonight. I've spent time on the front lines of these big issues, working on the NAFTA negotiations in the Prime Minister's office for the better part of two years. I've also spent time getting to know this community as a homeowner, a father, and editor of the local paper and own sound. I saw the determination and resolve that went into defending our aluminum and steel industries, our auto, our aerospace workers, our cultural industries, our forestry workers, our supply management system during the NAFTA talks, and I am proud of that record. Tonight, I'm guessing some of my fellow candidates will have some things to say about the carbon tax. I say this everywhere I go, and I'll repeat it here. Pricing pollution has been proven to reduce emissions, but most Ontario families will get more back in climate rebates than we pay in higher fuel costs. The rebates to households are 10% higher in rural areas like here, and farm fuels, including diesel, are exempt from the price on carbon. That's a key point. It's important. Climate change is going to affect future crop yields with the flooding and the drought that we've seen, including here in our community to a degree, Sticking our heads in the sand on this problem is not a solution. In partnership with over 60 countries around the world, including the EU, we now have a target of zero emissions by the middle of this century, backed by five-year legislated plans. It's ambitious, I know. It's going to require consultations with the provinces, with stakeholders, with businesses, and with individual Canadians. But it is achievable, and it is necessary. I will also tell you this evening that I'm a law-abiding gun owner and have been since I was 15. I'm also a target shooter and proud member of the Own Sound Revolver Club. I believe in common-sense gun control that improves public safety and respects the rights of law-abiding gun owners like me. And I will tell you that while working on Team Canada during the NAFTA talks, I saw our Liberal government stick up for workers and for farmers in the face of a protectionist assault from the U.S., unlike anything in our history. I'm proud of that record of defending middle-class families. I know what happened during those talks because I was there. I also know very well that rural and small-town Ontarians have to fight to have our voices heard at the table in the face of the great weight of the cities in our democracy. And that's what I will work on as your MP if you honour me by electing me. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Michael, or 
Now the next uh, speaker will be Dan Little, uh, representing the Libertarian Party. Dan? Well, first I would like to thank everyone for taking the time out of their day to be here. It takes a lot of commitment to leave the farm and listen to people talk about basically nothing for a couple hours. So I'm still asked all the time, what is libertarianism? What is it all about? What does it mean? And this would be a great time to tell that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm first going to start with what it isn't. What libertarianism is not. It is not cronyism. It is not corporatism. It is not anarchy. It is not a violent purge, no matter how many people seem to think it is. It's not globalism. It's not nationalism. It isn't left-wing or right-wing. It is certainly not statism. So what is it? It's people coming together, working together, to find real, free-market, non-partisan solutions to our common problems. Our common problems are housing, rural telecommun telecommunication prices affecting rural residents, crime in rural locations and in, and in cities, loss of mail service to rural citizens, and how to get the fruits of your labor as a farmer from the farm to the table without as much interference as possible from the government. So the role of the government, then, is to protect the individual. And this is done by providing a military that acts as a voluntary defense force, protecting the Constitution, the land under your feet, and the people within. And, it's all, and the government also acts as a referee between the provider of services and the services themselves, if they're public services or private services, it matters not. And so in conclusion, the Libertarian Party of Canada is working for the 1%. The 1% of people who are awake and see the government as a colossus of failure that must be reined in and severely limited. It's the 1% of people who know taxation is theft, fraud, and armed extortion all rolled into one. It's the 1% of people who know the best person to raise their kids is themselves, not the state. It's the 1% of people who work the land and toil to feed themselves and their families, not the Ottawa elite. It's the 1% of people who can no longer support a government that's engaged in foreign intervention, creating a never-ending cycle of war, poverty, death, and violence. It's the 1% of people that believe all problems especially First Nations problems, can be solved by strengthening private property rights, the right to own even your own house, and abolishing the Indian Act, which is nothing more than slavery packaged up real nice. And it's the 1% of people who believe our elected officials are completely out of touch and grossly overpaid. The 1% who want to see meaningful MP salary reform. They talk a big game about the wage gap, but at 170000 a year, I think they're the cause, not the solution. I hope over time, as my message gets out there, the 1% will grow. And if you're planning on not voting or staying home, please, just get out and vote. I don't care for who, just do it. As voter apathy reaches 40%, that will eventually give Ottawa carte blanche to do whatever they want. Form a majority with 25%. Yeah, we've seen it. It's not good. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Dan. Now, next would be Alex uh, Ruff, the Progressive Conservative Park Party. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, once again, thank uh, 
everybody for coming out tonight and for the organizers and volunteers for putting together uh, putting tonight's event together. I'm going to cover my background and a lot about who I am when I answer the subsequent questions. So actually, I'm going to take this introduction time to cover a lot of what the Conservative Party of Canada has already made for commitments uh, if we are elected. So first off, for support for small business. We're going to take several uh, measures to support our small business. First off, by repealing the Liberal tax increases on small business investments and exempting spouses from tax increases on your dividends. We're going to reduce federal uh, regulations by 25% and introduce a two-for-one rule for new regulations. Basically, for every new federal regulation brought in, we have to get rid of two. We're going to assign a minister to lead red tape reduction and mandate ministers and regulators to support innovation, economic growth, and global competitiveness. We're going to get rid of and scrap the carbon tax. It's costing you more money on your essentials like gas, groceries, and home heating, while at the same time it's doing nothing to actually combat climate change. Home heating. We're going to remove the GST off your home heating bills, which will mean upwards of $200 or capped at $200 per year in savings. We've introduced a a realplan.ca, a real plan to actually fight climate change that's focused on green technology and not taxes. We're going to introduce a green homes tax credit Canadians will be eligible to receive a 20% refundable credit for green improvements to their homes of over $1,000 up to $20,000. We're going to make home ownership more affordable. We're going to have a four-point plan to make uh, those homes more affordable to all Canadians. First off, we're going to fix the mortgage stress test to ensure that first-time home buyers aren't unnecessarily prevented from accessing mortgages, and we're going to work to remove the stress test for mortgage renewals, something I've heard from a number of people at the doors, and give homeowners more options. We're going to increase the amortization periods on insured mortgages up to 30 years for first-time home buyers to lower their monthly payments. We're going to launch an inquiry into money laundering into the real estate sector to root out corrupt practices that inflate housing prices. We're going to make surplus federal real estate available for development to increase the supply of housing. EI maternity benefits. We'll scrap the federal tax on maternity maternity benefits by providing a non-refundable 15% tax credit. We're going to boost the uh, RESP by 30% on every dollar invested up to $2,500 and it boosts the maximum lifetime grant from $7,200 to $12,000. We're going to reintroduce the children's fitness uh, tax credit of upwards of $1,000 per child per year up to the age of 16 and an additional $500 per child with disabilities up to the age of 18. We're going to bring back the children's arts and learning tax credit of $500 per child per year and double that amount for children with disabilities. We're going to bring in a universal tax cut. We'll lower the tax rate for the lowest income tax bracket from 15% down to 13.75%, which will equate to savings of upwards of $440 per individual or $850 for families. Every Canadian will see their income tax bracket go down, and those in the lowest tax bracket will see the biggest benefit of all. We're going to increase the age credit. We'll increase the age credit by $1,000 per year per senior, which will benefit the low- to middle-income seniors the most. We're going to provide additional support for rural communities. We're going to appoint a Minister of Rural Affairs, Regional Economic Development Ministers, and we'll invest in rural broadband as a priority. We're going to replace and purchase new MRI and CT scanners to the tune of $1.5 billion to replace the current aging equipment across our hospitals, and this will definitely reduce wait times with the up-to-date technology. We're going to end end corporate welfare. 
We're going to cut the $1.5 billion the current government has given to the big, richest companies like Loblaws and the Irvings and redirect that savings to Canadians. We're going to conduct a review of all business subsidy programs and eliminate those that have no benefits to Canadians. We're going to support our veterans, something I take dear to my heart. We're going to create a military covenant so that every veteran is treated with respect and provide timely services. We'll clear the current backlog of benefit applications. We'll strengthen transition services and provide more service dogs to veterans in our communities. Basically, I'm looking forward to give, being given the opportunity to keep my, to continue my record of service, and I hope that uh, at the uh, on October 21st you can support me and vote for Alex Ruff. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alex. And our next speaker will be Chris Stephen from the NDP. Well, thank you to the organizers for organizing this event tonight, and thank you for all of, thank you to all you, of you for joining us today. I want to start by saying it's been an incredibly exciting few weeks talking to people. I'm ready and excited to serve this community in Ottawa, and people are ready for a change. This is an important election. People are worried about the cost of living, housing, phone bills, and medicine, which all add up for families who haven't gotten a real raise in years. And we're facing serious national issues like climate change and the challenge of rec reconciliation that we think are vital to address quickly. People often ask me, why are you running? That's easy. It's because I care. I'm also inspired by two great NDP politicians of the past, Tommy Douglas and Jack Layton. Mr. Layton wrote in his book that politics is too important to leave to politicians. Well, I'm not a true politician, I'm a worker, a hockey coach, and an active member of my community. Working and coaching in my, in my town and riding is something that I take great pride in, but being a labor leader gives me unique insight into politics through negotiations and figuring out solutions to problems. Tommy Douglas opened my eyes when I first learned the story of Mouseland. It was my, it's my belief that this is true of Canada today. We get mad at one government and vote them out in anger but that just creates an endless rotation. I believe it's time for change, and I have great faith that the NDP can accomplish the change for the better. New Democrats are in it for you. We're on the side of working Canadians, not big corporations and lobbyists. We know that Canadians want a more affordable life, services like universal pharmacare, and action on big issues like reconciliation and climate change. That's why we're going to bring in pharmacare and dental care, That's why we're going to save families money every year on their phone and power bills. That's why we're going to stop profiting off our young people's student loans and work to make sure that cost isn't a barrier for any bright student that wants to work hard. We're going to push forward with a bold plan on climate that creates over 300,000 jobs and doesn't leave any community behind. That's what we'll fight for in Ottawa. No matter what happens in this election, a strong team of New Democrats can make a difference for you and your family on issues that matter. That's why I'm asking you to send me there to fight for you. I'm ready to work for this community. With different choices, we can get better results. Let's keep pushing for a better life for your family. Thanks, Chris. Next, next speaker will be Bill Townsend from the People's Party of Canada. Bill? 
Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Markdale Complex. It's uh, great to be here. I'm Bill Townsend with the People's Party of Canada. Of course, I live in Durham with my family, four kids, and uh, boy, is that ever busy. Um, we're making our way towards October 21st. I think there's 25 days left. And the most important election in living memory. I call this the most important election because this is the first time that we've had the opportunity to vote for a real alternative. Since the very first election in Canada, held from August 7th to September 20th, 1867, we've elected either a liberal or conservative government. Until now, there's never been a political party that could rival either the conservatives or the liberals. The People's Party of Canada is the fastest-growing party in the history of our country. What's happened over the last year is nothing short of amazing. Electoral district associations in all ridings, candidates from coast to coast. There's a very simple reason for this phenomenon, of course. It's because Canadians have been waiting for change, for real change, for decades. We've, for the most part, tolerated the elected government. We tolerate them until they become intolerable. And we find that we have to vote them out. Once the scandals, hypocrisy, lies, and ethical failures become too much to bear, we forget why we voted out the first party and vote the other one back in again. And over the course of the last 42 elections, we voted out either liberals or conservatives until we can't take it anymore. There have been other parties in the past. The National Party, for anyone who remembers that breakaway group from the Liberals in the 90s. The NDP or the Greens. And of course, the trouble with other parties sometimes is that they're based on a single ideology and so cannot present a real, complete alternative to the LibCon status quo. Finally, we have a party that is based on principles, not ideology. The People's Party of Canada. Freedom, responsibility, fairness and respect. Principles that are as Canadian as milk in a bag, ketchup chips, coffee crisp, or a kinder surprise. You know there's a toy inside, that's why you can't take them into the United States, because they think people there are not smart enough to not eat the toy. But in Canada, we know you're smart enough not to eat the toy. And the PPC also has faith that Canadians are smart enough to manage their own affairs in freedom, with a sense of responsibility. The People's Party of Canada has a simple message. I could go into great detail right now, but I want you to study our platform, and I want you to study the platform of every one of these parties, and take a look at them, and consider them. And don't, on October 21st, vote out the party that you don't want. I want you to vote for a party that has principles and says something real. Forget about vote splitting. It is a logical fallacy. Forget about voting out someone out of office because they haven't done what they promised or they have no respect for the legal process or they turn out to have no ethics. Okay, maybe you should vote them out. But you need to have something to vote for. And now there is a real principled alternative. Go find out what it is. Some of us have been waiting decades for this chance, and it is finally here. There is a party with the respect for freedom, responsibility, and fairness, and a party that is going to put you as Canadians first. I'm Bill Townsend. Thank you.
Thanks very much, Bill. And our uh, last candidate to speak at this point is Daniel Veliquet from the Green Party. Daniel? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good evening. I am uh, Danielle Valliquette. I'd like to thank uh, Ray for uh, moderating today, as well as the Grey Highlands Chamber uh, for hosting. And I'd like to thank everybody to, uh, for coming out tonight on what I'm going to call Crazy Weather Thursday. Um, and I would just like to thank you all for being part of our democratic process. Tonight, for now anyway, I'm not going to talk about science, because you know it already. But it is science that tells us that we're in this mess. But it's science and history and our will to survive that tells us we can get out of it. And as tonight's debate unfolds, I ask you to keep in mind three things. First, we must repair the damage we've done to our air, our soil, and our water. Second, we must ensure a just transition for everyone. We cannot pit our economy against our environment. And thirdly, we must act now. And I suggest another green action that must pervade all other measures. The building of partnerships across all sectors of society. We need all hands on deck. I am so proud to be green, and I strongly suggest that you download a version of our 2019 platform. It is fully costed because greens are committed to responsible fiscal policy that starts with transparency. Working with the Parliamentary Budget Office, we have identified a plan to reach a balanced budget by 2024 while addressing the climate crisis through Mission Possible, reducing inequality, ending poverty, and building a new relationship with Indigenous people. The platform addresses the needs of all Canadians, including those who live in rural communities. Canadians living in rural communities are a considerable part of the Green Party's overall strategy to strengthen our communities and bring people together. Our platform focuses on connecting people in rural communities with transit, internet, and political collaboration. We will support the industries that sustain rural communities while bringing job-creating infrastructure See, this is what happens when you practice when you're sitting down and somebody asks you to stand up. Our platform supports a new vision of Canada Post that will benefit our rural and remote communities that have more difficulty accessing services. Post offices will provide spaces for community meetings, public high-speed internet access, and banking services. Additionally, our government will make it easier for municipalities to move ahead with infrastructure investments, especially by funding necessary climate emergency mitigation and proofing. And there's so much more. Each political party represented here tonight is made up of volunteers and candidates who are just as committed to this country as the Green Party is, as I am. There are no villains in this room. Yet political parties are hemmed in by their past habits and their ways of seeing the world. The old line parties have decades of seeing politics as a competitive exercise in power. Competition is their bread and butter. 
Yet we will only build a greener society if cooperation overrides competition. As a young and dynamic party, the Greens are not the inheritors of past bad habits. We build bridges, not empires. Old line parties have had decades to see politics in left-wing and right-wing terms. That's not how the Green Party sees things. What a, we take ideas that will work from wherever we find them on the political spectrum. The Green Party sums up its commitment to nonpartisan partnership in a simple motto. Not left, not right, forward together. On a personal note, I am the only candidate among my esteemed uh, fellow candidates who have held elected office during a time when governments have had to mobilize around climate change. I took a lead role in partnership with others in helping my municipality, in my, helping my municipal council, whose members come from all points of the political spectrum, to see the wisdom of declaring a climate crisis and to be brave enough to move beyond words and onto action by creating structures that cope with the crisis. That's who I am, and that's who the Green Party is. Let's stand up and move forward together. Well, thank you very much to our candidates for their introductory comments. And I can see we have quite a variety of comments there to begin with, so we're going to move into the question section. Each of the candidates were given a series of eight questions that were prepared by the Chamber of Commerce, and they've had a chance to think about those and put their thoughts together. I, I want to say also that I realize people around Markdale are a really considered, really good bunch of people. And I want to, don't need to say this, I guess, but we hope that everybody will also be really uh, treat the candidates with uh, respect, uh, maybe no booze or boz or anything else, uh, but want to treat everybody with all your, keep your comments really constructive or positive. And before we go on, I need to ask people to maybe turn their cell phones off when the, when the four minute sign, uh, same came, I thought it was somebody's cell phone ring. So if we, uh, uh, turn your cell phones off and, uh, they can probably get along, uh, they'll call you back later. Okay, uh, the question, I, I guess the, the first question we have here on the, uh, prepared questions number one is what steps have you taken to prepare for the role of a federal member of parliament? So that's the question that everybody will, each of the six candidates will have a chance to answer. And we're going to do this in alphabetical order, but we're going to move down the line. We'll start in with the, with Dan Little the first time this time. So everybody's, Michael's not going to get stuck with being first every time, or Danielle's going to be last every time. So we're going to rotate down through and as in alphabetical order as you were told. So we'll start off with, uh, with, uh, Bill Townsend to start with. Or Dan, sorry, Dan Little, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm looking at my sheet here that has the second place on it. Right. So first off, I just want to make it abundantly clear that I don't actually want this job. Like, at all. <laughs> I just got involved in this because I can no longer stomach watching the red team and the blue team tear the country apart. And I don't see a sensible third option. But the steps that I've taken to prepare is just by making it on the ballot. Until now, there hasn't been a libertarian candidate in this riding in over 20 years. So that right there is my commitment. And if you, the people, deem it so, I will carry that commitment into Ottawa. Thank you. Okay, Alex will be the next... Uh 
So what steps have I taken to prepare to be an MP? Well, basically, I think every step I've taken my whole life and my military career has helped prepare me for the, to be a federal me member of parliament. So first off, I come from humble, modest roots growing up on a small farm up near Terra to a low, middle-income uh, family. So I can understand and relate to the majority of rural Canadians and actually likely to the majority of the people in the room tonight. Uh, since graduating from university uh, with an honor space science degree, my military career has provided me not only the education and experience both domestically and internationally, but most importantly, it's provided me with the leadership opportunities and honed my ability to critically think, analyze any given situation, consider all factors, and then make a decision while not only considering the short-term implications, but the long-term implications as well. I'll explain more about my qualifications in uh, question two. But most importantly, since entering politics, I've been knocking on thousands of doors across our great riding and listening to the issues that matter most to the constituents of Bruce Gray Owen Sound. While simultaneously, I've been engaging with experts in all fields, whether agriculture, finance, on the environment, and I've been reading policy, not just the conservative policy, but every party's policy as I can find it. And not only that, I've been challenging Ottawa. I've been challenging my own staff on ideas that they think I should be doing out here in Bruce Gray Owen Sound. And the fact of the matter is, they don't always know what's right, and I want to be that strong voice for Bruce Gray Owen Sound in Ottawa. And finally, I'm learning and working my butt off every day. Thank you. Thanks very much. Next is uh, Bill Steer, Chris Steven. Realizing that it's going to be a huge learning curve is an understatement. However, I've been asking lots of questions of my team and people that have experience uh, to get a good idea of what the task ahead is and the work that goes with it. I like to surround myself with intelligent people that know how to navigate tough waters. So that is my plan, to keep surrounding myself with those people, keep asking questions, because questions is how you learn, and have them to continue to give me counsel. This is a trait that successful and wise people possess so that they can navigate waters easier and have success in any job they do. Thanks very much, Chris. So Bill Townsend. All right. So... Preparing for the role of Member of Parliament, it depends on what you see as a Member of Parliament. If it means uh, misappropriating funds and lying before an ethics commissioner and stuff, I haven't prepared for that. But in terms of doing the job properly, um, I've been a broadcaster for uh, several decades, and I've worked closely with politicians at all three levels and have had kind of a, a ringside seat to the whole process and what's going on and uh, have engaged uh, members of parliament, members of provincial parliament, uh, senators, um, commissioners of various types and have a very good working understanding of how the government should work. But I think the primary role of a member of parliament is to be a conduit of communication. The member of parliament is the representative of the constituents of the riding. So ultimately, there's two things you need to be able to do. You need to be able to communicate to your constituents, and you need to take those ideas, so you have to be a good listener, take those ideas and communicate them to Ottawa so that they can be understood and implemented. So I think in that respect, um, I'm fairly well prepared. So uh, I thank you very much. 
Thanks very much, Bill and Danielle. So I've been preparing for this role um, since February when I decided that uh, I was going to give this a kick at the can. And um, I've been speaking with lots of people, but what I've been doing is reading, 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 so that I have an understanding of all of the issues from all angles. So I've reviewed bills and bill summaries. I looked at the a multiple international panel of climate change reports. I've reviewed both the midterm report as well as the final report on murdered and mis missing Indigenous women and girls. I reviewed the uh, Canadian House of Commons Special Committee on Electoral Reform. I know all very, very exciting stuff. I read the Electoral Act and the Parliament of Canada Act, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, but once elected and no longer campaigning, I would uh, continue to to analyze further and really get to know um, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Canadian Constitution Act, as well as the Parliament of Canada Act at greater length. Thanks very much, Danielle. And now uh, back to uh, Michael. Well, I, I've had um, many thousands of conversations across the riding beginning last January and many, many conversations in people's living rooms. And these are people across the political spectrum, not just liberals, conservatives, greens, new Democrats, undecideds, people's party. I've talked to everyone and um, that I think is, is, the, is a fundamental preparation for the job. Um, I've raised three kids in Own Sound, uh, started two local businesses, one of them a not-for-profit, I have spent 30 years as a journalist, five of them as an uh, editor of the Sun-Times in Own Sound. I was a senior group editor for Sun Media's Ontario Community Papers and investment editor of the Globe and Mail and national editor of the Financial Post before that. So I have a broad range of experience as a team leader, uh, leading teams large and small, and also listening and engaging with, with, the, with uh, the community. I've traveled worldwide in the course of my uh, work including to disaster and war zones. Spent many thousands of volunteer hours working in the community with kids as a martial arts instructor in Own Sound. I've spent a lot of time listening, understanding, and reflecting the community's needs. And I worked on the Canada-US team in the NAFTA negotiations, coordinating our government's response to Donald Trump. I know my way around Ottawa, and I know how to advocate effectively. Just one last point. I know that nothing really prepares anybody for public life, and I'm, uh, I'm humble enough to know what I don't know and what I need to learn. And I feel like the work I've done for the past 30 years has, has prepared me to work for my community in this job. Thanks very much, Michael. Now we'll move on to the second question, which is, do you have qualifications that would allow you to be considered for a committee chair or a cabinet position? So we'll uh, actually, uh, uh, Alex will take off on this first. All right, so this will this will be a bit of a laundry list, I think. So uh, basically, I got over 20 plus years of working at all levels of government, both domestically and around the globe. My diverse background includes working in uh, rural affairs, public safety and emergency management, foreign affairs, public works and procurement, 
I've worked with non-government organizations, NATO, NORAD, multiple allies. I've been engaged with ambassadors, heads of missions, worked across the defense industry and intelligence and cyber. Um, Obviously, I understand veterans' issues very well, uh, better than most uh, being one. I have an honor space science degree. I've completed a year-long uh, course in defense and resource management and procurement, a year-long graduate-level uh, course in Toronto that focused on developing expertise in complex joint interagency and multinational settings. I've personally briefed the Assistant Deputy Minister Committees on both national security and emergency management. I've reviewed and helped draft the military portions of memorandums to Cabinet. I've led the design and execution of a major public safety exercise that involved more than 47 different government departments and agencies across this country and with the U.S. I've been the deputy director of all uh, planning, all Canadian forces operations. I've been the director of all joint training. I've managed an annual budget of over $30 million. I've been responsible for millions of dollars of infrastructure and equipment. I've commanded over 1,000 soldiers. I've been a trustee of a trust fund. I've sat on a, board of, a museum board of directors. And bottom line, I have over 20 years of leadership, uh, filming leadership positions. And, I just, and, and so that's exactly why I think I have the qualifications to continue to be that leader. Thanks very much, Alex. Chris Stephen. First, being a newly elected representative, I'd have to settle in, learn the ropes, and put in the work to get noticed that I was a valuable member. My background in labor and my role as a leader in my union would give me insight, and in my opinion, could make me an asset for, to be considered for the employment, workforce, and labor cabinet. This is where my team-first attitude would be of importance, and after some time and experience, I believe I could definitely be a leader in this group. I've taken many courses through my union on subjects like negotiations, creating safe and healthy workplaces, and mental health. Currently, I'm scheduled to take a course on labor law in the very near future. I always try to better myself and learn new things. And when I do that, I always take what I learn and put it to practical use. Thanks, Chris. I'm Bill Townsend. So I have a varied experience that includes uh, being uh, self-employed in the financial services sector, and I have also negotiated uh, contracts as well. But primarily as a communicator, a broadcaster, I would think that uh, the communications department is where I could apply my skills. We have some uh, pretty extensive work that has to be done in communications. Um, as far as regulations and regulatory services go, we're talking about the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television Telecommunications Commission. I'm intimately familiar with that. So likely that is where I would apply uh, my particular skill set. But I can talk a little bit more about those things based on these questions that we have coming up this evening. So I can talk a little bit more about the specifics of that when we get to those questions. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Danielle? So this was my favorite question um, because it involved a little bit of dreaming and, and I ended up going down a little bit of a rabbit hole on, uh, on the internet. Um, but my um, BA is in uh, women's studies, so I figured I could move into uh, the Minister of Women and Gender Equality. Um, there are several cabinet committees that I, I dreamed that I would love to participate in, including the Environment and Clean Growth Committee, um, which I figured I could chair um, because I do know 
know the rules of uh, chairing a committee practically. Uh, and as a Green, and on any committee I'm on, I would push uh, members to bravely act on the climate crisis. But quite honestly, uh, my experience and my passion for communities, I think, would make me a great minister of infrastructure and communities. And that would be my dream job. Thanks very much, Danielle. Uh, Michael? So the, the, the question is, do you, do you think you have the qualifications to lead a committee or be a cabinet uh, minister? As I've said, I've, I've been a, a leader in my uh, community and in my work for a long time, but with all due respect, I think that question puts the cart before the horse. The job that I'm applying for is Member of Parliament for Bruce Gray on Sound. That's a big, big job, uh, and that's what I'm focused on. Um, this job involves, a, I already can tell from all the conversations I've had, involves a lot of listening, hearing people, uh, their views, their concerns, whether they agree with you or not. You've got to listen. You've got to talk. You've got to discuss and eventually reach some kind of an understanding. And that is, that is that, a big part of the job. You need to make sure that the concerns of people here are heard in Ottawa. And I think that is the, the, the first, the last, and the everything in this work. We have a small community, 106,000 roughly people across, spread across a very large area, and we need a louder voice in Ottawa, and that's what I'm focused on. Thanks very much, uh, Michael and uh, Dan Little. Well, since this is my first time running for any public office, I think it would be a bit more than hubris to start talking about uh, different committees and cabinet posts and whatnot. What I actually enjoy doing in my free time is looking at all the cabinet positions and seeing how many we can abolish <laughs> while still maintaining a good, responsible, limited government. So... So the best I can come up with would be, as a cabinet post, would be the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. And that would just be holding up Article 121 of the Constitution and saying, get it done. Free trade between the provinces, no tariffs, no subsidies, no barriers, no exceptions. How can we be expected to get free trade right globally when we can't even figure it out at a national level? In Ontario, it's easier to find wine from California than it is to find wine from B.C. And Alberta wine is a fantasy that doesn't exist, even though it does, and it's incredible. And I would also like to serve on a committee chair for electoral reform. Either it be an instant runoff ballot, uh, a, a dual ballot where you vote for your local rep and your government's leader, or some type of proportional representation or mixed member. I'm open to all suggestions. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dan. The next question we have here is, what do you think about the federal uh, management of rural broadband initiatives? Certainly heard lots about that in the last while. That question again, what do you think about the federal management of rural broadband initiatives? And we'll start off with uh, Chris Stephen on this one. Staying connected digitally is more essential than ever. Yet too many rural communities in Canada don't have reliable cell phone or broadband service. 
A new democratic government will change that by delivering high-speed rural broadband to all communities in Canada without delay and ensuring that reliable cell phone service is expanded to every area of Canada while keeping rates affordable for families and businesses. The New Deal for People would also introduce a telecom, telecom consumer's bill of rights to put an end to aggressive and misleading sales and service practices of big cell and internet companies. The NDP will require service providers to offer basic plans and meet the needs of Canadians, end caps for internet plans, and require companies to offer affordable, unlimited data plans for cell phones so that Canadians don't have a surprise on their monthly bills. Among OECD countries and other developed economies, Canadians pay some of the highest prices for mobile wireless and broadband subscriptions. Smaller countries like Australia are sometimes paying two times less. In 2018, the total revenue per gigabyte in Canada was roughly 70 times higher than that in India, 23 times higher than Finland. Canadian telecoms paid or made 35 times what Indian companies made for the same data usage in 2017. As a result, Canada has a lower data use than many other countries. The NDP will cap will save families an average of $10 a month for each bill, meaning that family will pay, family with two plans will save $250 a year. Thanks very much, Chris. Uh, Bill Townsend. All right, so uh, as far as rural broadband initiatives go, we do need to have better access to broadband here. When I lived outside of town, I'll I'll be quick telling this little story. When I lived outside of town, outside of Durham, I needed internet access, of course, and I really had very few choices. I could get DSL from Bell, except it's not 1999 anymore, or I could use ExploreNet and get internet over the satellite. But there was an alternative out of Holstein, a company called Atel, and they used their own wireless infrastructure. But here's the problem. When you have a small startup company like that that provides an excellent quality service that's very well priced, they're a smaller player, and they cannot compete because of the regulations with large companies like Rogers, TELUS, and Bell. So we need to get the regulation situation clarified first uh, so that we can get some real competition happening in that business and be able to have more choices for people out in these areas. I personally do not want the Government of Canada as my Internet service provider. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. So many of you know that I am a fan of uh, broadband. I have uh, sat here on this stage and talked about it before. The digital divide in Canada speaks to the social inequalities within our country, and an increase in rural broadband means a stronger economy and more options for everyone, especially youth. And right now what we're getting is too slow and too slow. So let me explain. So essentially the Liberal government is making is making, um, sorry, the investments that the Liberal government is making are inadequate. $130 million annually for all of Canada does not solve the problem. The rural areas in southwest Ontario alone have at least a $2.5 billion infrastructure deficit today. So the second slow is the target speed. Essentially what the government is saying is that we need 50 megabits down 
and tag megabits up. So you might as well just call that the new dial-up. Why should rural areas not be equal with their urban peers? In Toronto, you can buy one gig down and one gig up for about $100 a month. If we had that speed at that price, imagine the home-based businesses that would start here, the education opportunities we could access, and the healthcare innovations we could access. To top it off, we we would reduce our need to drive and save money and reduce greenhouse gases. As your MP, I will fight to ensure that rural communities don't get second-rate internet. We deserve to be connected just as much as our urban communities do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Danielle. Uh, Now back to Michael. There's no bigger infrastructure issue that I hear about than this one, honestly. Uh, Talking to farmers, talking to freelance writers, uh, senior citizens who want to be able to communicate better and trade pictures back and forth with their grandchildren. This is a a major, major problem in our community. And um, I share the frustration of people who have looked as, uh, you know, watched as various governments over the past 10, 15 years have talked about this and not made the, not made the necessary commitments. Um, the, the, the budget this year, budget 2019, did make a major commitment uh, towards investing in rural broadband, a multi-billion dollar commitment. And the commitment is to roll out high speed to 95% of the country by 2026. We're tracking for 90% by 2021 and full coverage by 2030. As far as I'm concerned, that's still too slow, but it's it's, it's the first really significant move that I've seen on this, and I think it's a good step in the right direction, partly driven by the Minister of Rural Economic Development being put in place last year, Bernadette Jordan. Uh, so she's made this a major commitment. I would add as well that uh, Telesat is working on low-Earth orbit satellite connectivity in our area. I talked to a guy at the door in Sound who said he was working on this project and told me a little bit about it. They're hiring people in Hanover, and they're expecting to get some results for for high-speed internet in this area by 2021. Thanks, Michael. Dan? Well, on the issue of broadband, connectivity and access, and above all, pricing, it's a complex problem with a very simple solution. Let's just abolish the CRTC and its predatory monopoly on the providers of services. No longer let the big three run carte blanche over all of us and open up the markets to more competition. Verizon could come up here tomorrow if they were allowed to. And they tried a few years ago and they were lobbied relentlessly against and the project never got off the ground. And the cell phone plans and bills in this country are just a bad joke. I pay $45 a month for unlimited talk and text with no data and I'm told that that's a great deal. I pay roughly the same amount on my work phone in the U.S., convert it to Canadian dollars, unlimited talk, text, and data nationwide in the continental United States. Protectionism is the problem. Cutting the red tape is the solution. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, Alex? 
So access to broadband internet is essential for our rural communities. According to CRTC's 2017 monitoring report, only 39% of rural households have access, access to reliable internet versus 96% for urban areas. Family farms are constantly uh, adopting new technologies to drive efficiency and effectiveness of their farm businesses. Not having access to the reliable high-speed internet puts them at a disadvantage. Getting reliable broadband to rural areas has to be a partnership approach from all levels of government, including federal, provincial, and municipal, with private industry leading the way, such as with the SWIFT initiative, which is bringing broadband internet to 3.5 million residents across southwestern Ontario. There's still a number of issues that need addressing. Significant upfront costs to telecom service providers who would be extending their services into rural areas with non-existent rates of return. The near monopoly of telecom market by the big providers, as Dan just hinted at, Lack of a comprehensive broadband strategy by the provincial governments that federal, regional, municipal, and indigenous partners can align with. So a conservative government would make rural broadband access an immediate priority, not just a priority a few weeks before the election, and look to partner with other levels of government and private partnership to get the internet uh, infrastructure projects built. Thanks. Thanks very much, Alex. Now, the next question, what federal policies are in place or should be in place to make sure the carbon tax revenues are actually helping to reduce carbon emissions? That question again, what federal policies are in place or should be in place to make sure that the carbon tax revenues are actually helping to reduce the carbon emissions? And we'll start off that one with uh, Bill Townsend, please. All right. So... First of all, what federal policies are in place to make sure that carbon revenues are actually helping to reduce carbon emissions? The very simple answer to that is there are none. A tax is not going to suck CO2 out of the air, right? It's, it's not going to happen. So what should be in place? Well, I guess it depends on what you want to accomplish. If you want to reduce the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere, you have to stop putting it there, and there's really two main ways you can do that. You could stop driving, so walk home tonight, and don't turn your furnace on this winter. They're not really realistic options in Canada. And to impose a carbon tax on everybody in this country and then turn around and say, yeah, but you're going to get it back... You haven't done anything except create a bureaucracy that has to manage this tax to be collected and then given back. The idea is that it's going to create incentives. There's limits to human nature and what people are willing to do and what people are willing to give up. The uh, People's Party of Canada position on uh, carbon emissions involves understanding the science of climate change because the climate is changing it has changed it's changing now it will continue to change we need to understand the science of climate change we also need to understand the politics of climate change because they're not the same and they should never be mixed like they are now and the people's party of canada will prevent that thank you thanks very much bill uh danielle so to start, carbon pricing is just one tool that economists have recommended to reduce CO2 emissions. And really what we're looking for is a massive global shift to be towards re- using renewable energy. 
The Green Party for years has advocated for a carbon fee and dividend system, an approach that ensures revenue neutrality and social equality, as well as ensures that real costs of of wasting energy and resources are accounted for. So step six in our mission possible is about carbon pricing. The Green Party will apply a carbon fee to all producers of fossil fuels, all, and redistributed it as a dividend to all Canadians. But we cannot have everyday people paying for pollution and ignoring big businesses. With the Liberal plan, big businesses are treated differently than you and me. Big business is taxed according to how they compare to their industry standards, industry peers in terms of efficiency, meaning they just need to be the best of the bad. The Liberal plan falls short of reaching the targets established by Harper's government and is nowhere close to what is required to meet the Paris targets. And on Tuesday, the Liberals did it again. They committed to net zero by 2050, but again, there is no meat on the bones. A commitment to net zero emissions is another empty pledge, especially for a government that doesn't have a concrete plan in place to meet its 2030 targets. Thank you. Thanks very much, Danielle. Moving on to Michael. Thank you. Well, I, I can't agree with my colleague at the other end of the table on that one. In fact, what we have in place right now is the first ever serious plan for reducing greenhouse gas emissions in this country. You know, various levels of government and various uh, parties have tried this time and time again over the past 20 years. I've seen them come and go. They've never been effective. They've never had any teeth. The one we have in place right now prices carbon. This is a mechanism that economists across the spectrum have said will work. It has worked in other jurisdictions. There are many other countries around the world that are doing this. Stephen Harper was in favor of this in 2008. Preston Manning is still in favor of it now. And the reason they're in favor of it is because they know that the best way to incentivize changes in consumer behavior is by Choice, individual choice, incentivize individual choice. You raise the price of a product, you reduce demand a little bit. And you prevent that from hurting people and families by providing a rebate. Now, Bill says that there's a bureaucracy that's in place to, 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 to work this through. In fact, there, there is no bureaucracy in place, and that's why this is done through rebates. It's Revenue Canada that's returning the money on your taxes. $304 roughly per family this year a little over 500 next year, a little over 700 the year after. And as I've said in many conversations across the riding with with folks who are concerned about this, if there's a better way, if you have a better way of preventing damaging climate change that's going to hurt our crops and imperil the, 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 the future of our kids, I would love to hear it, but I haven't heard it yet. Our plan is a serious plan. It just needs time to take effect. Thanks very much, Michael. Uh, Dan? So I think by now everybody knows the crazy libertarians' views on taxes. Theft, fraud, armed extortion. That includes the carbon tax. A tax to change consumer behavior. There's nothing free about that. That is, by definition, extortion. And our environmental policy is non-monetary, non-tax. It puts into the Constitution the right to own private property free for all. 
It also establishes the right to a healthy, clean, and safe environment that protects the land under your feet, the air you breathe, and the water you drink. And it allows people to take legal action against any entity, government, corporate, or individual, that infringes upon that right. So when Montreal dumps raw sewage into the St. Lawrence River, they're getting sued. When Owen Sound does a building decommission and they don't do the proper environmental assessments and there's tainted soil, they get sued. When your neighbor burns tires, he gets sued. That's our environmental policy. But on to tax transparency. I think that the books of every government should be opened once per year and subjected to a line-by-line forensic audit. We have the right to know where our money is going and why it's not there. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sam. Alex? So under the current government, the carbon tax is making life more expensive for everyday Canadians, driving up the cost of gasoline, groceries, and home heating while giving a break to some of Canada's biggest emitters who are exempt on up to 90% of their emissions. As an environmental policy, the carbon tax is shown to be a failure. Canada is nowhere near meeting its Paris Accord targets. Emissions are rising, not going down. The PBO estimates the carbon tax would have to increase to over $100 per tonne to have the desired effect. Also, the revenues generated by the carbon tax are not being used to lower emissions, therefore are making no contribution to the global fight against climate change. The Conservative Party has a comprehensive plan to fight climate change, which is based on the principles of green technology, not taxes, and taking the fight global. A Conservative government would expand the mandatory application of the major emitters policy from 50 kilotons to 40 kilotons of CO2, which means that more major polluters would be held accountable under our plan. For every ton of emissions over the standard limit, companies would be forced to invest in emissions-reducing green technology within their own industries. This approach would drive investment in emissions-lowering technology across a span of industries, having a real tangible effect on lowering the CO2 in the atmosphere. Other emission-lowering initiatives in in our plan to fight climate change are the Green Homes Tax Credit, the Green Patent Credit, and the Green Technology Fund. The tax credit will provide a tax credit for uh, home renovations, as I mentioned earlier, which could reduce emissions up to 85 megatons. The patent credit will reduce taxes on income generated from emissions-reducing technology patents, which will then drive innovation in in R&D and commercialization here in Canada. Finally, the Green Tech Fund will leverage up to to a billion dollars in private investment in new venture capital for Canadian green tech companies. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alex. And uh, Chris Steven. It's time for a roadmap to emissions reductions that puts our communities and our planet on the path to good health and sustainability. A new democratic government will declare a climate emergency and put in place ambitious, science-based greenhouse gas reductions targets that will help stabilize the global temperature rise to the 1.5% degrees Celsius. We will put these targets into legislation and ensure accountability by creating an independent climate, climate accountability office to do regular audits of progress towards our climate goals. Recognizing that putting a price on carbon is an important tool to drive greenhouse gas reductions at the source, we will continue carbon pricing, including rebates to households that fall under the federal backstop plan, while making it fairer by rolling back the brakes given to big polluters. 
The federal government can also model change by, coming a, by becoming a trailblazer in energy efficiency, clean technologies, and renewable energy. We will lead by example and procure from Canadian companies clean technology and ensure that federal buildings use renewable energy and move to vehicle fleets in the federal government to electric by 2025, choosing made in Canada whenever possible. Thank you. Thanks very much, Chris. Moving on to number five, Canada's agricultural food industry drives our national economy. What would you work on to help Grey Highlands farmers be more sustainable? Just to read that question again, Canada's agricultural food industry drives our national economy. What would you work on to help Grey Highlands farmers be more sustainable? So we'll start with Danielle this time. You get the first kick at it. So, though not in conflict with one another, food, uh, food production in Canada must reconcile the need for affordable food with that of adequate income for farmers. The Green Party wants to put opportunity back in food production. We encourage the localization and diversification needed to stabilize the food economy without expensive government subsidies. It means thinking local, building soil capacity, encouraging economic diversity, reducing farm debt, and increasing the number of young farmers. Over the long term, this means greater focus on strengthening the viability of smaller farms, which is increasingly becoming the only option for a growing number of younger farmers. Greens will encourage community-supported ag, farmers markets and wineries, and microbreweries that we all love. They will assist in reestablishing the infrastructure for local food processing in canneries, slaughterhouses, and other value-added processing. To expand local ag agriculture and help new farmers get started, the Green Party will invest $2.5 million dollars per year into a land and quota trust program and farming apprenticeship programs. We will provide effective fiscal incentives to other levels of government to preserve farmlands under their ju jurisdictions. As your Green MP, I will fight to replace one-third of Canada's food imports with domestic production, increasing regional food self-reliance, and returning $15 billion in food dollars back into our economy. Additionally, I will fight to protect the right of farmers to save their own seeds, as well as protect the supply management system. Extreme weather events will hit farmers hard in certain, on certain years, and the Green Party of Canada will restructure Canada's business risk management programs to help farmers cope with climate risk. Thank you. Thank you very much, Danielle. Moving on to Michael. I guess uh, on on how we do a better job to support farmers, I'd point to uh, really five points. First is protecting and preserving supply management. It's in dairy and poultry. It's the it's the it's the part of our farm economy that is doing the best. The the dairy farms are drivers of the rural economy, and that needs to be protected. I would note that during the NAFTA negotiations, when President Donald Trump was talking about, was insisting on, on removing it completely over 10 years, we insisted that that not happen, and the Conservatives were telling us to do a deal at any cost. 
And we did not do that, and I'm very happy that we did not do that. Secondly, we need to make sure that our trade agreements are working well for, for farmers. We have, we've signed the three biggest trade agreements in Canadian history, the Pacific deal, the European deal, and now the new NAFTA, which gives us access to 1.5 billion consumers around the world. But we need to make those trade deals work for us. I've talked to beef farmers who say, despite the fact that we now have free trade with Europe, they still can't get their beef into Europe because of non-tariff barriers. That's something that needs to be worked out, and that'll happen at the negotiating table and in one-on-one exchanges between governments, and it's hard work. It has to be done. We need to, we need to address climate change. I was talking to a farmer in Feversham not that long ago, a couple weeks ago, who said that his crop this year was no good. Bad crop, he's going to need to, to rely on crop insurance because the spring was too much precipitation and the summer was too much heat, too much of an extreme, and the crop failed as a result. That's just going to get worse. So we have to do something about climate change. We need to help farmers find labor. There's a, there's a critical labor shortage in this region, and farmers know this better than anybody. They can't find people to do the work. So the government, the federal government right now is working on this. We've established an agri-food uh, worker program to bring in people from overseas to help fill some of these jobs, and that is critically important. Thanks. Thanks very much. Okay, um, Dan. So the first step with helping farmers, especially local rural farmers, is just getting the crops to market. Bypass all the government regulations, the marketing boards, and just get the crops out there. We need full free trade in the world and here at home with no tariffs, no subsidies, no barriers, and no exceptions. And also by abolishing the federal farm tax, the gas tax, the GST, the excise tax, and now the fraudulent carbon tax, farmers will have more money left over to invest in their farms at the end of the year, and they'll be able to modernize and revolutionize, especially dairy farmers who may be left in the cold when supply management ends. They'll need to modernize their farms, and then they'll need to update and innovate. And the best way to do that is with more cash and less being plundered into Ottawa. I also like to point out that critical infrastructure projects affecting farms can be communally funded voluntarily. We don't need to be paying infrastructure taxes to build train stations in Burlington. We need to be protecting our roads and bridges here at home. Thank you. Thanks very much. Alex? So first off, I would state our local farmers are among the best of being sustainable in the first place. That being said, I would advocate slash support the uh, new Conservative Minister of Rural Affairs and our Regional Economic Development Minister to ensure any Cabinet decisions reflect our riding's ag food concerns in the following areas. A, with our, within our trade deals or amendments to existing trade deals or resolutions of ongoing uh, trade disputes i.e. when we look at the ongoing uh, challenges with China and the billion dollars it's currently cost our agriculture Canadian farmers already. As well, I'd work to with all levels of government to stop local farmland from being sold for non-agricultural purposes. I'd work on the farm succession planning and regulation in order to help keep our local farms within family, families feasible and to encourage the next generation of farmers. 
I'd encourage rotational grazing schemes for ruminant farmers. This has been shown to significantly increase soil organic matter, which improves pasture and hayfield yields and basically sequesters more carbon. I'd encourage more no-till cash cropping to encourage better soil quality. I'd work with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to ensure food safety regulations are safe, but not so restrictive that they're actually hindering sustainable farming. I'd support research into new varieties of seeds and plants that would be more resistant to any potential impact of climate change. I'd work towards a federal cost-sharing agreement for livestock and crop risk management programs. And finally, I'd support local food initiatives, farmer markets as a strong local economy is vital to our sustainability as well. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alec. Uh, Chris? New Democrats are committed to supporting and growing Canada's food sector. That's why we're fighting to put more local food on kitchen tables across the country, protect supply management for farmers and consumers in all trade negotiations, invest in farming communities to make sure they're ready to respond to climate change, invest in public agriculture research and plant breeding to support innovation and provide direct economic benefit to farmers, invest in high-speed broadband and cell phone infrastructure to connect farmers and rural communities to the technology, tools, and services they need. New Democrats have a plan for Canadian food strategy that will take the whole-of-government approach to address regional needs and priorities by investing in our agricultural communities, supporting young and new farmers, taking steps to ensure that rural livelihoods are good and sustainable. Supply management protects our family farms, rural communities, and the hundreds of thousands of jobs. New Democrats are committed to fully protecting supply management and ensuring collaboration in all trade negotiations and supporting these sectors as they innovate and grow. And we'll defend Canadian agricultural products like canola from unfair retaliation in overseas markets. It's a challenge to grow a business without modern communications infrastructure. That's why New Democrats will make sure that high-speed broadband and cell phone infrastructure is available to connect our farmers and rural communities to the services and tools they need, no matter where in the country they are. Rural Canadians should be as connected to markets, opportunities and each other as anyone who lives in urban Canada. Finally, we need to make it simpler for young people and women to get into the agriculture lifestyle and build a, build a life on the farm. We'll work with provinces to improve training opportunities across the country, and we'll provide low-cost startup loans for new farmers, and we'll provide support and succession planning and end the unfair tax treatment of family farm transfers, making it easier for the family farm to stay in the family. Thank you. Thanks very much, Chris. Uh, Bill? All right. This is a, a tough question to answer because you have to understand the question in the first place. And what's meant by the word sustainable? Well, natural farming practices in and of themselves are, by definition, sustainable. That's what farming does. You farm and then you plant and harvest and you keep doing it year after year. So maybe it means maintaining the sustainability of farming in the sense that preventing things from going wrong. I had a conversation with a local farmer. We were talking about changes to the Saugine River that were likely caused by excessive tiling. And that's a possibility. The driving force there, of course, would be industrial farming. And 
we are seeing the disappearance of the family farm. So what can the government do to deal with these problems? Well, we can do a couple things. One, we can make sure that farms are not taxed out of existence. So we'll reduce the farm tax to 10%, but we can also get rid of the capital gains tax and put some financial uh, relief in place there. So those are two things that we can do. Um, and we would have to take a look at why the family farm is disappearing. It's way worse in the States than it is in Canada, but we need to study that problem and find out why. Because if all we have are industrialized factory farms, the quality of our food goes down, the entire thing becomes a, a, a degenerating cycle, and we need to do something about that. But unfortunately, we don't have the answers right now, but we need to find out. Good. Thanks very much, uh, Bill. Okay, number six, the question. We need more affordable housing. Do you have any solutions? Could the Central Mortgaging and Housing Corporation offer 5% down payment mortgages to more people? So just read that again to you. We need more affordable housing. Do you have any solutions? This is kind of a two-part. Could the Central Mortgage and Housing Corporation offer 5% down payment mortgages to more people? So we'll start with uh, Michael this time. Well, the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, expanding the first-time homebuyers incentive is, is in our platform for this election. A re-elected Liberal government will fully implement the first-time homebuyer incentive, which provides Canadians with up to 10% off on the price of their first home. It will also address the impact of foreign speculation, which drives up the cost of houses by imposing a tax if, if somebody, if a foreign buyer is seen to be speculating on real estate prices. Uh, the, the Liberal government has launched the first ever national housing strategy, which boils down to uh, a plan to help 600,000 people get an affordable home. Um, we're funding the construction of nearly 140,000 more housing units across the country and created the Canada Housing Benefit, which is new, to, ha to help 300,000 Canadians with the, the, uh, the cost of rent. And I can tell you that there's no single issue that I hear about more other than maybe broadband, than this one at the door, uh, the cost of housing in this area. And you know that here because Chapman's, I think, has, has, has been working hard on this problem to try to address it so that, so that their workers have places to live. That's how serious this is. And I would just add that the conservative plan to do away with the stress test, that's the, which is basically to make sure that uh, people don't get themselves in trouble by taking on too much debt over too long an amortization and get in trouble with, with uh, rising interest rates when they go up. That stress test was put in place by Jim Flaherty, the late Jim Flaherty. He was one of our better finance ministers. He was a conservative, but he was a, he was a good guy. I covered him for years when I was in Ottawa, and he cared about people. And he put that in place after the Great Recession of 2009 because he was worried about people getting themselves into trouble with the mortgages. And I think removing that is, is risky and uh, is just going to end up driving up the cost of houses. And TD Bank confirmed that this week. They think it's going to raise the cost of, of houses in Canada by about 5% next year if it goes into effect. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Dan? 
Well, before we start exploring the solution to the housing crisis, let's first look at the cause and the problem. It's this predatory cycle of ultra-low interest rates over the last 10 years that have driven up prices and driven up inflation and made our dollar worth incredibly less and our houses worth incredibly more in a bubble market. And now the Liberal plan is to increase the incentive for the first-time homebuyers. When Evan Siddell, the head of the CMHC, said that this increase is a bad idea. It's more free money chasing the same amount of houses and then the money chases the market and the market price rises. So everyone will eventually get left behind and these loans will not account for anything. So I, say, I still think that my idea with private property rights can mitigate the cost of housing by allowing people to build on their land. If you build it, they will buy it and they will pay a fair, free market, reasonable price. I also feel that we shouldn't be pumping up the bond market like this and overinflating the housing market, especially with increases to the first-time homebuyer's incentive. All this extra money in the market is going to lead us into another credit and financing bubble. And we've seen this movie before. Trust me, the ending sucks. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Dan. Alex? So to answer the last part of the question, first reference the 5% down uh, payment, I, I'm actually, I'm not sure, but I'm sure, I don't see why it wouldn't uh, be possible, providing the appropriate risk analysis is completed. With respect to the potential solutions on affordable housing, the Conservative Party has a four-point plan to make it easier for first-time home buyers to buy and pay for a house, unlike the current government's plan that actually has you giving up part ownership of your equity to the government. The Conservative Party will not remove, but fix the shortfalls in the mortgage stress test to ensure first-time home buyers aren't unnecessarily prevented from accessing mortgages. A new Conservative government will work with the OFSI to remove the stress test from mortgage renewals to give homeowners more options. It'll increase the amortization period on insured mortgages to 30 years for first-time home buyers to lower their monthly payments and make home ownership more affordable. We'll launch, as I mentioned earlier, an inquiry into money laundering into the real estate sector and work with our industry partners to root out the corrupt practices that inflate housing prices. And we'll make more surplus federal real estate available for development to increase the supply of housing. More important, we're going to just make you more affordable measures in our plan, include, as I mentioned earlier, the universal tax cut, get rid of the GST from your home heating, scrap the carbon tax that will all put more money back into young people's pockets and seniors and make life more affordable and home ownership more practical. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Can we move on to Chris? We got a plan to create half a, million, half a million units of quality, affordable housing across the country, including affordable rentals, co-op housing, and social housing. We'll also make it easier for young people to buy a home, making co-ownership easier, and reintroducing 30-year mortgages. Everyone should have a right to a safe and affordable place to call home. Working people should be able to afford to live close to their workplaces, including in the heart of our biggest cities. Young people should be able to stay in their neighborhoods they've grown up in, and seniors should never be forced out of their communities that they've spent their lives in. But for too many families, safe and affordable housing is increasingly out of reach thanks to skyrocketing rents and ballooning home, price, home ownership prices. Parents lie awake at night worrying about how they can afford the family home as the costs keep going up, but paychecks don't keep going up. 
and huge numbers of young people are being forced to give up the dream of ever owning their own home. Canada is in the midst of a national housing crisis, impacting every area of the country. Average rents rose in every single province last year, and today 1.7 million Canadian households spend more than 30% of their income on housing. That's why a new democratic government will create 500,000 units of quality, affordable housing in the next 10 years, with half of that being done in five. This will be achieved with the right mix of effective measures that work in partnership with provinces and municipalities. We'll build capacity for social community and affordable housing providers and co-ops and meet environmental, ener environmental energy efficiency goals. This ambitious plan will create thousands of jobs in communities all across the country and help Canadians get the afford affordable housing they need. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Bill? All right, I have to uh, echo the sentiment made earlier that we need to understand the problem because there definitely is a problem. And I just ran a few numbers just to see exactly what the problem is. So I took a look back and I just picked a year, 1957. And uh, the average income was $4,700 a year and a house was $30,000. So approximately six and a half times the annual income is what people were spending on a house. 2018, according to these statistics, Stats Canada, the average income was $70,000 across Canada, and the average home price was $480,000. Once again, around a six and a half to one ratio. But wait a second. If we went to Flesherton or down to Dundalk, you'd probably see house prices around $400,000. So that seems to be fairly close. The only thing is, people living in Dundalk and Flesherton and Markdale do not make... $70,000 a year. You can earn that money in Toronto, but the house is going to cost you a million dollars a year. We need to find out what exactly is causing this bubble. There's lots of speculation about it, literally speculation, but um, we need to correct that problem or else we're never going to undo this. And um, we have, to, we have to study it and find the solution that way. We can't just take government money and throw it at people to let them buy houses that they can't afford. Thanks, Bill. Danielle? So federal in, um, incentives for purpose-built rental housing were eliminated in about the 1970s. During decades... During decades of encouraging home ownership, federal support for co-ops, rental housing, social housing, and supportive housing have languished. We now face a national shortage of affordable housing as a result, a growing pro as a result, a growing problem of homelessness and housing insecurity. The Liberal government's national housing strategy does not address the immediate core housing needs across Canada and the funding for affordable housing will roll out over 15 years, but it is needed now. The Green Party will enhance the federal government's contribution to meeting the housing needs of Canadians through direct investments, changes to tax policies, and uh, lending and grant programs. We will strengthen the national housing strategy so it meets the needs of affordable housing that are unique to each province. That the target would be 25,000 new and 15,000 rehabilitated units annually for the next 10 years. 
Additionally, the Greens will increase the National Housing Co-Investment Fund by $700 million for new builds and the Canada Housing Benefit by $750 million for rent assistance for 125,000 households. And finally, as your Green MP, I would fight to create a Canadian co-op housing strategy that would update the mechanisms for financial co-op housing in partnership with CMHC, co-op societies, credit unions, and other lenders. Thanks very much, Danielle. Moving on to question seven. Do you support a federal pharmacare system? Pretty straightforward. Do you support a federal pharmacare system? And we'll start with Dan this time. No. Oh. All right, good enough. But that being said, healthcare, including pharmacare, desperately needs to be expanded. And I think the government is the worst possible method to expand these services. All the government does is put people on a wait list. And the Supreme Court has already ruled that access to a wait list is not access to health care. So the solution is to get the federal government out of health care altogether. Under Section 91 of the Constitution, it is designated as a provincial jurisdiction. The federal government's only real legal role in healthcare is the provision of quarantine zones in case of an infectious disease outbreak, not for running hospitals in Ottawa and Alberta and across the country. That role is best left to the provinces. So if the provinces want to have a, a universal pharmacare program, then I'd say let them have it. But if Ottawa gets involved, everyone's going to fall through the cracks It'll become a massive white elephant with cost overruns and a never-ending cycle of increasing public debt. And that's debt that we cannot afford. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Alex? So the Conservatives believe that every Canadian should have reasonable access to the health care they need. The Liberal, NDP and Green parties have all proposed varying degrees of a national pharmacare system in their current platforms. The Liberal Party has been promising a pharmacare plan since their 1997 election platform. The recent Advisory Council report on pharmacare proposed a single-payer pharmacare plan estimated a cost of $15 billion a year. The justification these parties are using is that there would be savings of approximately $4.5 billion a year by leveraging the buying power to purchase the medications. However, when you take into consideration or into account the $15 billion cost of the system, there's still a massive cost to taxpayers and the parties, these other parties are not saying how they pay for that plan. According to the Conference Board of Canada, 90% plus of Canadians currently have or qualify for a prescription drug plan. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce Chief Economist Trevor Stratton said, Canadians want governments to only provide coverage to people who are underassured, uninsured, or, or really need it. Conservatives understand that some Canadians struggle to afford their medication. It is those Canadians who do not have coverage that the Conservative Party will focus on with respect to their pharmacare policy. The Conservative Party will have more to say on this issue in the near future. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Chris? 
New Democrats are fighting for a national universal public pharmacare program to make sure all Canadians can access the prescription medicine that they need with their health card, not their credit card, saving money and improving health outcomes for everyone. Under our system, everyone should have access to quality health care no matter where they live. But too often, Canadians are getting different care depending on their province of residence. New Democrats believe that federal government has a critical role to play in upholding and enforcing the Canada Health Act, especially against the creeping threat of privatization and user fees. A new Democratic government will work with the provinces and the territories to tackle wait times and improve access to primary care across the country. We will identify the coming gaps in health, human resources, and make a plan to recruit and retrain, retain doctors, nurses, and other health professionals that Canadians need. Canada is a leader in innovative health research, and we will work with universities and health professionals to make sure that public research on critical health issues continues to flourish. A new democratic government will step up and regulate natural health products under standalone legislation. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Bill? Well, we can only be thankful that the federal government is not responsible for health care. It's strictly a provincial concern. That said, um, there would be some merit to having a portable pharmacare system similar to our portable health care system that we have that is portable across all the provinces. But you have to take a look at what happened in Ontario and wonder what they were thinking when they said about a year and a half ago that they were going to make prescription drugs available to people under 25 years of age when almost all of those people that qualify, yes, there are some exceptions, but most of those people were already covered under their parents' group term benefits. So who was the beneficiary of that brainchild of the government? Of course, the corporate healthcare insurance providers. They save tons of money, and it just got passed on to you and me. I am in favor of supporting a federal pharmacare system. There's no reason why we can't extend it similar to we have portable health care across this country. Um, and, but the only role for the federal government is to simply facilitate the transfer of the funds to pay for it, and that's about it. But I would support it. Thanks, Bill. Danielle? Thank you. Presently, Canada is the only developed country in the world with a universal health care program that does not include a universal prescription drug program. Greens were the first to call for a pharmacare program, and we fully support the recommendations of the Parliamentary Committee on Health to expand the Canadian Health Act to include prescription drugs dispensed outside of a hospital. Universal Pharmacare is the best way to accomplish both life-saving and cost-cutting goals, as pharmaceutical drugs are the fastest-growing component of healthcare costs. We can dramatically reduce these costs by establishing a single purchasing desk of pharmaceuticals, therefore in introducing a national pharmacare plan, and so ensuring all Canadians have access to prescription drugs would result in a truly universal health care system. As a Green MP, I would fight to expand the single-player Medicare model to include pharmacare for all and dental care for low-income Canadians. Additionally, Greens will buy a bulk drug purchasing, would create a bulk drug purchasing agency and reduce, reduce drug patent protection periods. 
So I remind you that the Green Party platform is totally costed. So people who are asking how we're going to pay for supports for people never ask how the old line parties will fund oil and gas subsidies or tax cuts for large corporations. We can afford to redirect money from tax loopholes and corporate handouts to invest in the lives of people. But if we want a society that respects human dignity, we can't afford not to. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, Michael? Uh, my short answer is yes. Absolutely, I support universal pharmacare. This is a good idea. It's, a lo- it's been a long time coming, and uh, kudos to the Green Party and the New Democrats for the work they've done advancing this idea. I think that good ideas have no party affiliation, and if we are elected, we will implement national pharmacare. You know, uh, many, many Canadians... Uh, cannot afford the, the medications that, they're, that they need to stay alive, uh, diabetics uh, uh, particularly. Um, and about a million Canadians uh, are, don't have a family doctor uh, at any given time, including probably many of the people in this room don't have a family doctor or have struggled to find a family doctor. So that's not acceptable in a country as wealthy as ours. As Danielle said, you know, we're a wealthy G7 democracy. We should be providing this as part of Medicare. In addition to that, a Liberal government will ensure that every Canadian can easily find a family doctor or primary care team. This is an idea that, uh, that has been advanced for many, many years, and I've, I've never understood why it is that we, as citizens, need to subsidize the, the, the education of medical students, as we do, and, can, and, and yet cannot... Um, impose some conditions on that subsidy by saying you need to go work in an underserved area. You need to go up to Bruce Gray on Sound, for example, and help people up there. I think that's an idea worth exploring. Thanks very much, Michael. Moving on to the last question in the ones that were circulated, uh, number eight. Our senior population is increasing rapidly. The cost of living is also increasing annually. Would you promote a substantial increase in the old age pension and then annual indexing? I guess the first there would be Alex. So conservatives recognize that all Canadians, especially those on fixed incomes, are finding it more difficult to get by. The cost of gasoline, groceries, and home heating, as I've mentioned earlier, have all gone up. Our seniors have helped build our country, and we owe it to them to make their lives more affordable. While our conservative platform is not specified to date any changes to the old age pension, it is something I have personally passed on to Ottawa, uh, to the party headquarters, and it is something I will advocate for uh, as a, because it is a large concern that I've heard at many doors within our riding. It's important to note it was the previous conservative government that in- introduced the largest increase to the guaranteed income supplement in the last 25 years and increased the GIS earnings exemption so that seniors taking a job wouldn't lose their benefits if they took that job. The current conservative platform has a number of initiatives that I said, as I mentioned earlier, they'll make life more affordable and put more money back in seniors' pockets. We'll increase that age credit for seniors by $1,000 per year per senior. For a couple, this would put about $300 more back in your pocket at the end of the year. The universal tax cut specifically will reduce the the, uh, 
income tax on the lowest tax bracket from 15% down to 13.75%. And again, that's going to save each individual up to about $440 a year. Removing the GST off your home heating bill, that'll be another $200 per year. And again, scrapping that carbon tax that's just making life more affordable. Thank you. Retirement should be a time of new opportunities and new experiences, not worry and stress. We all want to retire with security and maintain our standard of living, and we want to live our retired years with dignity and comfort. New Democrats believe that every Canadian should be able to count on a dignified, secure retirement, and will fight hard to protect pensions that workers have earned. To that end, we will make sure that pensioners are at the front line when a company goes bankrupt and make sure unfunded pension liabilities own, owed to workers and employees, and sever pay are a top priority for repayment. We are committed to strengthening public pensions and improving retirement security for all Canadians. A new Democratic government will create a pension advisory commission to develop long-term plan to protect and enhance old-age security, boost the guaranteed income supplement, and strengthen the Canada Pension Plan. We'll also make automatic enrollment in OAS and GIS retroactive, so no retiree misses out on benefits they should be receiving, and we will support efforts to make sure Canadians have a good retirement. Many seniors themselves, caregivers, and loved ones rely on the caregiving of family members in order to make life a little more affordable for caregivers who are overwhelmingly women will make Canadian make the Canada Caregiver Tax Credit refundable. This will provide thousands of dollars to the most low-income caregivers, many of whom have given up work completely to care for a loved one. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Chris. Bill? The People's Party of Canada is the only party that is represented across this country with a realistic plan to correct a lot of the problems with our taxation system. We want to have uh, basically two tax brackets and two tax rates. Okay, 15% if you earn less than $100,000, 25% if you earn over $100,000. And if you earn below $15,000, you don't pay any tax at all. Um, I would consider extending that tax-free status to all of our seniors. There's not really much point in looking at increasing the amount of payout through the Old Age Pension and Canada Pension Plan and GIS systems if you're just going to claw some of that money back in terms of taxes. First, stop taxing them all together. They've paid their taxes. We need to uh, first take that penalty away from our senior citizens. It's kind of like our approach to the veterans. We want to completely overhaul the uh, veterans benefit plan and return everything that was taken away in 2006 and finally return dignity and respect to our veterans, many of whom are senior citizens. And um, there's three things that we can do just as a start. Thanks, Bill. Danielle? Thank you. So we are living longer. While this is unquestionably great news, a great many, many of us haven't saved enough for our longer lives. So what the Greens would do, would it, they would integrate the old age security and, and guaranteed income supplement into a guaranteed livable income, so a GLI. 
And the universal GLI program would replace the current array of income supports, such as disability payments, social assistance, and income supplements for seniors. Basically, we would streamline the programs. The Green Party's proposal for a guaranteed livable income will be a key step in consolidating the various disability tax credits. Thanks very much, Danielle. Uh, Michael? Senior citizens in our community have worked hard all their lives. They've paid taxes all their lives, and they deserve a dignified and secure retirement. This is not a matter of of, uh, theory, and it should not be a partisan issue. This is something that every senior has earned. So um, old age security is indexed, and uh, the Liberal government increased those benefits in July to reflect inflation, which is a good thing. One of the things I'm happiest about in our platform is that OAS, uh, if we're re-elected, will increase at age 75 by 10%. And that is a, is a way to help the seniors who are most vulnerable. And uh, there are 6 million people in that, in that situation of collecting OAS, by the way. So it's a lot of people. In addition, CPP survivor benefits will increase by 25% so that widows and widowers collect 75% of their deceased spouse's uh, Canada pension rather than 60%, which is the current uh, upper limit. And that's a difference of up to $2,000 in CPP benefits for widows and widowers. We know that there are still going to be gaps, uh, so we're investing in all areas to ensure that more seniors can enjoy their golden years including by encouraging seniors through the New Horizons for Seniors program to share their knowledge, skills, and experience with others in the community and enhance seniors' social well-being and community vitality. Right here in Markdale, by the way, that has meant $12,000 for programming to get seniors more computer savvy so they can keep in touch with their grandkids and live an active and fulfilling life. And I I I guess I would just add that the Liberal Party... Uh, in its tax policy, has announced a, a change in the taxation so that the first $15,000 of income for anybody earning less than 150000 a year, which I think is most seniors, um, will be completely tax-free. And that's going to make a big difference for our senior citizens. Thanks very much, uh, Michael. Dan? So I'm going to read this first part very slowly. So I hope that all my opponents soak it in. First, we need to pay down the deficit and then start paying down the debt. We can't expand OSP because those contributions come from taxes. And there's only one taxpayer, and that's all of us. I would rather make OSP, CPP, EI, all of these federal assistance programs voluntary to the the discretion of the taxpayer. If you want to enroll in the program, Feel free, pay your taxes. If not, explore a private alternative. And that being said, with taxation, when we have these voluntary services, we can abolish all forms of taxation that are mandatory, and all programs can be funded voluntarily. And if we also stop taxing passive investments of senior citizens by abolishing the capital gains tax, They'll have more savings because we're also not pilfering from the interests accrued in their accounts. No passive tax, no tax period. 
The poverty line in this country is approximately 24,500, thereabouts. And it just seems barbaric that we're taxing people that are by the very definition impoverished. And we can get, a, we can right a lot of wrongs by changing the basis of our monetary system. Pegging the Canadian dollar to gold will wipe out inflation almost overnight and we can liberate interest rates from the control of the central bank and let the free market set interest rates. Because right now, the interest rate trumps the inflation rate at all the major banks. Or, sorry, other way around. Even the so-called high-interest banks, your rate of return on investment is less than that of inflation. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, uh, candidates. You've certainly made a great job on answering those questions, and certainly a lot of effort has gone into that. The exciting part comes now because they were asking people if you had questions you want to ask from the floor. So people were writing, filling out cards with their questions. We're going to turn over to those questions now, but if someone wants to go to the washroom, we may take just a, a two or three minute break here just for to go quickly. If the, I ask you to not pester the candidates on your way because they want to get there, they got to come right back. So if you want to just uh, uh, take a few minutes, don't go, don't leave. You can't leave. Uh, you'll want to hear the response to these other questions. Okay, if we can have everybody come back and take their seats now. Have your attention, please. Call everybody back to order. Okay. Everybody have a seat, please. Okay, we're trying to get everybody back to order here to bring finish off the meeting. Okay. Don't know what I have to do to really quiet people down here. Okay, if we can uh, get back to order now, everybody's uh, greatly relieved and had a good discussion on a stretch, so uh, we'll start back in. We have quite a number of questions that have been submitted from the floor. I will say that I was asked the question when they could, you could read your questions. We have to have the questions here. Main reason for that is that if everybody asks their own question on the floor, I think you've all heard it happen at times where well, before the person asks the question, they have to give a big speech. We're going to try and cover as many as we can, so that way if you give us your cards, we will link them together. If there's two or three for the same question, same, we'll actually combine them. And uh, so this time we're going to give the, the candidates one minute to talk, because you haven't had a chance to rehearse this ahead of time, to put all the words to it. So we want a really quick answer, and we'll go through the same process we did before in terms of uh, one minute, and we'll do it alphabetically as we went on. We'll just carry on from where we left off. So the number one question here is, with the onset of global warming, what are your party's plans to maintain Canada's sovereign sovereignty in the Arctic? 
I'll read that again for you. With the onset of global warming, what are your party's plans to maintain Canada's sovereignty in the Arctic? And for that, we'll start with Chris Stephen from the NDP. This one's going to be a short one for me. I don't know the answer to that one, but I will get the answer and I will post it on my social media as soon as I can get it so that everybody can look it up. I'll go next. Okay. Um, I'm not quite clear on the question either. With the onset of global warming, what is our plan to maintain Canada's sovereignty in the Arctic? That's what it says. The Arctic is ours. <laughs> Whether it melts or it doesn't, it's ours. Thank you. Am I okay? Yeah. So I agree with Bill on this one. Absolutely, the Arctic is ours. So right now what's happening in the Arctic is Russia is doing these, basically these marketing stints in which they're um, essentially putting things in the water, in the ocean, much like um, you would go to the moon and plant a little white flag and say, now this belongs to me. And the reason why that is important and the reason why people are fighting over the Arctic right now is because as we do nothing and as the Arctic melts and becomes warmer, it is going to become inhabitable. People are going to be able to live there. People are not going to be able to live if everything goes completely wrong in the South. And so that's why it's very important that we as Canadians protect the sovereignty of the Arctic. Thank you. Okay. Okay, thanks, Daniel. Uh, Michael? Um, uh, I've, I've been to the Arctic a couple of times, and there, there are thousands of people already living up there. And their, their livelihoods and living standards are reinforced by support from the Canadian Coast Guard, and they're defended by the Canadian military. So the Liberal government, in its defense policy review that came out in June of 2017, it's called Strong, Secure, and Engaged. I urge everybody to read it because it's an important document. Uh, announced that uh, we're working on uh, building 15 new surface combatant ships, 88 uh, buying 88 uh, new fighter jets for the Canadian uh, Royal Canadian Air Force, six Arctic offshore patrol vessels to patrol the Arctic specifically, and a new fleet of Coast Guard vessels, including a three-season icebreaker. And uh, this work has been ongoing in fairness to the, the Conservatives. They began this work in 2011, much of it with the National Shipbuilding Procurement Plan. But uh, I think that the, the plan they announced was not costed. Uh, ours is fully costed and actuarially sound, and these ships and planes are going to become part of our armed forces, and we need that in the Arctic because the uh, Arctic is going to be free of sea ice very soon in the summertime. And uh, so, so the, the, those troops, the, those uh, pieces of equipment are super important. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Daniel? Yeah, Arctic sovereignty is of a national interest to Canada. So a libertarian government would defend the sovereignty of the Arctic from all aggressors. The main aggressor is the Russians, but I really don't think we need to fear them much in the Arctic. I think it's mostly just bluster. So by expanding our access to submarines, it doesn't matter if all the Arctic ice is melted, because a submarine is still a submarine, 
Rather, it's encased in ice or in fresh water floating. So to defend Arctic sovereignty, it's the same plan as we've always had. Expand the role of the Navy to patrol the Arctic, use reliable patrol planes and aircraft to patrol, monitor, and guard the Arctic against all forms of aggression, and re-augment and re-outfit the Canadian Rangers because they're our first line of defense in the Arctic, and I think they need something bigger than a 303 Brit. Thank you. Okay. Alex? So uh, I will give uh, the current government credit. Strong, secure, engage is actually, I think, uh, one of the best uh, policy, defense policies that have been out in about 50 years. So it is a good policy that the military is building upon. Uh, but basically, our uh, view of Arctic sovereignty, it is non-negotiable. Uh, it belongs to us because it, it doesn't belong to us. It is us. The Arctic is part of Canada. Uh, we need to continue our Canada-U.S. tradition of joint military defense. Uh, we're going to start talks with, uh, with them. We'll reference the uh, ballistic missile program and see if that's worthwhile to further investigate in. Uh, as already mentioned, the uh, uh, shipbuilding program that came in under the previous conservative government, uh, but we will continue to invest in our icebreaker fleet. And what, if a conservative government's formed, we're not going to buy used aircraft, fighter aircraft, and continue to delay that. We're going to buy a brand new fleet of vehicles uh, and get it off there. And as well, I'm a personal believer we need to support our indigenous uh, rangers. Uh, I've been to the Arctic a couple times myself, and it's, uh, it's important uh, for our Arctic sovereignty, the role they play. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Okay. The next question here is rather lengthy one we have here. Uh, family law and justice. On July 11, 2008, the federal government formally apologized on behalf of all Canadians for the treatment of children in Indian residential schools for the separation of over 150,000 children from their families and communities. Meanwhile, today, the family court systems continue to separate children from families while the legal system profits from it. How would you fix the problems surrounding the system that is failing families yet supposed to be doing do the following? It's supposed to promote and the best interest of the child, address family violence, help reduce child poverty, make Canada's family justice system more accessible and efficient. And this is from a, an article in May 22, uh, 2018, legislation introduced to amend Canada's federal family laws. Clear on the question? Do you want me to read it again? Okay. Give you a bit of time. On July 11, 2008, the federal government formally apologized on behalf of all Canadians for the treatment of children in Indian residential schools for the separation of over 150,000 children from their families and communities. Meanwhile, today, the family court systems continue to separate children from the families while the legal system profits from it. How would you fix the problems surrounding the system that is failing families yet supposed to do the following? It's supposed to promote the best interest of the child, address family violence, help to reduce child poverty, and make Canada's family justice system more accessible and efficient. So we'll start with this one with uh, Bill. All right, so that question kind of puts two different scenarios next to each other. The first is the um, Indian Residential School, the 60s scoop, whatever you want to call it. 
And the government finally apologized for that, and rightfully so. And just before I get on to my answer here, I'll just specify that we have just released a new policy for rebuilding relations with Indigenous Canadians. It's on the website, peoplespartyofcanada.ca. Check it out, because it's really, really good and really, really overdue. So we have the 60 scoop and the separation of children, and then the person talked about that process continuing now with children being taken out of the home. I think what we have a problem here is the fact that when it happened in the 50s and 60s with Indigenous kids, it was done without due process. There was no reason for that other than the fact that it was just simple uh, government control using non-government organizations, and it was wrong. There was no due process. Thanks, Bill. Danielle? So I was very happy to see that uh, to see that uh, we apologized as a nation um, for taking uh, indigenous uh, children uh, to residential schools. I was recently at a reconciliation uh, thing event, and it had a map of where all the residential schools were, and it, it was very. It was actually quite sad to see how many they were. There were of them. And I think what the solution is to this is that we need to have an Indigenous-led solution. We need to engage the community and work together to come up with a solution that is going to work for our Indigenous people. I would also like to point out that I do, um, I agree with Dan, that we need to move towards abolishing the Indian Act. Um, and I also also would like to point out that within our platform, the very first chapter is on reconciliation with our Indigenous peoples, because it's that important to Greens. Okay, now, uh, Michael? What happened in the residential schools has been described as a cultural genocide, and I think that's exactly what it was. The Indian Act is racist. If you read it, you can see it's filled with racist language and thinking. It was drafted in 1876, and it's still the law of our land, and the fact that it is is a national disgrace, in my opinion. But you, and it does need to be abolished, absolutely. The thing is that you cannot abolish it without the permission and leadership of the people themselves who are, who are, who are affected by this. The uh, federal government tried to do this in, in uh, 1969, and they failed miserably because it was a top-down effort. So my view, uh, and, I've, and, and I've held this view for a long time, is that, yes, we have to get to, to abolish the Indian Act, but it must be done gradually, and it must be led by the people themselves. In the meantime, ending boiled water advisories and building houses is, is the practical and, and concrete thing that must be done, and our government is doing that in a very determined way. And uh, I know this. Uh, I was up at uh, Cape Croker just a couple of weeks ago helping on a Habitat for Humanity, a construction that has been funded by the federal government. And uh, uh, I, th I think we need a lot more of that. Thanks, Dan. Mike? Dan? Well, the simplest solution is oftentimes the most correct. And the most correct solution here is to just get the government out of the way. Get the government out of our family life and out of our homes. When family situations become violent, that's when the government needs to step in on behalf of an independent court and criminal justice system. 
But in regards to the Indian Act, where everyone has rightly been throwing a lot of shade tonight, the Indian Act has a clause in the education section that basically says the residential schools never really went away and they can come back at any time. The wording is exactly as such. The minister may, in accordance with this act, create schools for Indian children. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Alex. So I don't profess to be an expert in here, but I, I do know the Conservative Party will, and I, I, I advocate for it too, to support the Jordan's principle that basically states that Indigenous children are, are entitled to the exact same rights as any other child across this great country of ours. As well, we're focused on, the party's focused on bringing forward actual measurable improvements to help uh, ensure uh, the lives of our Indigenous people are better off. Um, these effective measurements include access to affordable housing, health services, and quality drinking water. Uh, it's critical that the government spending translates into measurable uh, benefits or increases in these areas. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Alex? Okay, Chris? I agree with Alex on Jordan's Act. We need to fully support that. And we also have a plan for reconciliation with the Indigenous people. But one other thing that we need to do, I've heard people say we need to give them a seat at a table, but it needs to be an equal seat at the table. Nobody knows better than what they need than they do, so they need to be treated equally in this situation and give them an equal seat and an equal voice in every solution for them. Thank you. Okay. Okay, that's got the group there, I guess. The next question, how many concessions did we make on supply management in percentage uh, while may, uh, negotiating the Mexico-Canada-U.S. agreement? So I assume this is with the um, dairy farmers. So how many concessions did we, as in uh, sort of Canada, make on supply management in management, a percentage while negotiating the Canada-U.S. agreement? Mexico can do a Okay, the first speaker will be Danielle. So supply management not only affects dairy, but affects poultry and eggs as well. Um, and admittedly, I don't know what the exact percentage of, uh, of the supply management. I can tell you, and, and, mo and everyone up here is going to tell you the exact same thing, that we will defend supply management. Um, I, I can imagine that sitting, if I pretend for one second I'm Christoph Freeland for a second, that sitting at the table with Trump was not a fun negotiation. Um, so I do give kudos to uh, the Liberal government for protecting it and doing what they can to um, to keep it as close to what it was uh, and, and is now. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dan or Michael? Oh, sorry. The, 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 there are different numbers on this that get bandied about, but the, the, the best number I've seen is about 13%, between 12 and 13% mark, market opening, um, which is roughly in line with what the Harper government negotiated with the Obama administration under the original uh, TPP negotiations uh, and the early CETA negotiations. So it's not... Uh, it, it, and it needs to be... To be, to be um, uh, considered in light of the fact that the President of the United States 
in the NAFTA negotiations was looking for 100% market access. Um, and also in light of the fact that we, the, the government has been compensating uh, dairy farmers, as it should, for the loss of market share and quota. Uh, there was a, uh, an announcement, I think, in August about a $1.7 billion of, of uh, support that has been gone out, uh, going out to our dairy farmers to compensate for that market share loss. Thanks, Mike. Hi, uh, Dan. So on how many concessions we made on supply management? Well, since the program is still in existence, I would say we haven't made enough. It's time to abolish that protectionist lobby and allow people who actually want to start dairy farms but not pay $35,000 per cow just for the right to milk that cow. Well, let's get them going. There's a 300% tariff wall that just artificially inflates the price of dairy, and it does nothing for the average consumer. And I feel that the farmers would be better served if they could sell raw milk, regular milk, any of their products, free and into the Canadian and global markets without any marketing boards or restrictions. Thank you. Okay, Alex. I kind of figured, Michael, you'd know the exact answer. You're part of the team, as you pointed out a couple times. But my, my understanding is for the dairy farmers, uh, 3.59% of concessions were agreed upon. Um, and as well, there's actually no, uh, um, what's it here, to, by agreeing, no cap on actual dairy uh, exports going forward as well, which was another concession. Bottom line, the Conservative Party will continue to support our uh, supply management system and we will ensure that there are, uh, any of our supply-managed uh, programs are compensated for any losses for, uh, due to these trade deals. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Chris. I'm not going to give you actual numbers because I don't have them in front of me, but I know that the party has committed itself to protecting supply management. Not only that, but they want to become more transparent in negotiations so you can see what's actually going on so that you know if it's going to affect you in a negative way. Because if you, ha if you see that up front, then we can make changes quicker to the plan so that it doesn't hurt you negatively. So... That's what we want to do, Tran more transparency with the negotiations. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, Bill? The People's Party of Canada wants to phase out supply management, so the issue of concessions is not really an issue for us. Um, we would then be able to have expanded uh, free trade of all of those um, products, dairy, poultry, eggs, and also reduce the cost for the average Canadian. So that's our answer. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, moving on to the next question here. Uh, I'm just trying to read. I hope I can read this properly here. A bit of a scroll here. I am astonished to see that there are still subsidies for the production of oil and gas, even though Canada promised to phase them out a number of years ago. What is your party's position on this? I'll just read the question again for you. I'm astonished to see that there are still subsidies for the production of oil and gas, even though Canada promised to phase them out a number of years ago. What is your party's position on this? And we'll start with Michael. I, w I was uh, working in the Prime Minister's office uh, in uh, December of 2018 when uh, the uh, oil and gas uh, producers out west were facing 
massive layoffs because of the decline in the price of oil and the heavy oil glut in Alberta that was causing a lot of uh, retraction in that industry. And so the federal government stepped in and provided a package to help workers keep their jobs. And some folks would say that's, that's, that's contradictory from a government that's trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, except that thousands of people, tens of thousands of people losing their jobs anywhere in the country is destabilizing, not only to them, to their families, of course, to their livelihoods, uh, it's, it, but to the whole country. And so the, the, the approach of this government has always been to bolster the economy while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Bolstering the economy is very important because if, if too many people become angry because they've been left behind, the result is reaction and the election of politicians like Doug Ford and Jason Kenney who don't believe in climate action. So I think our approach was, uh, was measured and fair and responsible. Okay. Alex? Well, I like easy questions, especially these ones. The libertarian motto on subsidies is the only good subsidy is an abolished subsidy. Our entire platform is based on no tariffs, no subsidies, no barriers, no exceptions. It doesn't matter if it's an oil patch or a solar farm. It's not getting your money unless you want to fund it. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Alex. So to be honest, uh, I don't know what the party's platform on this yet. They have, we have not released uh, anything on subsidies for the uh, oil, uh, oil resources or the oil industry. However, uh, I know in the past the government has, uh, you know, signed on to eventually phasing it out. Thanks, Dan. Chris? Hi, as well, like easy questions. Are it over and over again, I've heard, we're going to end the subsidies and redirect all that money to clean energy sources and put it into something called the Climate Bank, and the Climate Bank will be given, people will be given access to it for retrofitting their homes, low-interest loans to retrofit homes, businesses, etc., and move towards more clean, more green energy. Okay. Hey, Bill. It is the platform of the People's Party of Canada to phase out all corporate subsidies. That's one of the ways that we have the plan, the only written down plan of any of the major parties to balance the budget in two years. Thanks, Bill. Danielle. So the Conservatives have absolutely zero plan to remove fuel subsidies. Um, and in 2015, the Liberals made a, um, as was part of their platform to remove fuel subsidies. And I believe it was um, Justin Trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould that was on the cover of that, but that's a different story. So this makes me think of, everybody knows who Greta Thunberg is, right? or Thunberg, or however you want to say it. And so did anybody see her speech to the world leaders? And what did she say? Sum it up in one word. What do you remember? How dare you? So we have... 
We have taken away things from our children and our grandchildren because we have the political inability to move forward. What we need is brave people who are not politicians but want to do the right thing with our world and our planet. Thank you. Thanks, Danielle. Okay. The next question we have here, how will you ensure that youth who are under the voting age have their voices heard? How will you ensure that youth who are under the voting age have their voices heard? And we'll start with Dan. Well, this is another one of those simple questions. My motto on voting age is if you're paying taxes, you're voting. It's as simple as that. If you're contributing to the government and what they do with your money, your voice deserves to be a voice that's heard. Thank you. It's an interesting question. I don't know if it's our job to make sure their voice is heard, but I think ultimately, you know, youth, it's through education. As I've said, in my experiences around the globe, um, I can solve every world problem through education, and I'm not talking... Uh, degrees or diplomas. I'm just talking, teaching people to critically think and challenge what they're hearing, not only from political, but religious, from social media, what they're reading in the news. So I think youth will continue through, if we continue to educate our youth, their voice will be heard because they'll, as they get older, uh, their voice will resonate across this great country. Thank you. So I agree. No, again, an easy question, but we got to listen to our youth. Our youth are the ones actually leading a lot of the climate change battle. Greta, we have so many of them leading, and they are very intelligent. Uh, I agree with Alex that we can do a lot through education, but we also got to interact with them. I am in unique opportunity that I coach kids regularly, so I interact with them. And they are very intelligent and have very, they're very smart. So if we listen to them, we can actually solve some problems. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, Bill. In Canada, young people have varying degrees of agency depending on their age, at age 14, 16, 18. And at uh, age 18, you pretty much have full agency, though you can't drink alcohol. Um, so... If they're underage, their voice will be expressed by their parents, the very people who are there to make the decisions for which they are not allowed. Daniel? Youth is exceptionally uh, important to uh, the Green government, and we engage them as equal partners, not junior partners in creating change. And in fact, the Greens would actually lower the voting age to 16. Okay, the next question here, I'll see if I can read this the way it's written. Uh, recently, photos of the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau... Oh I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, Michael, you did. Exactly, sorry about that. You're right at the top of the list here, I missed you. That's good, excellent. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, one of the, one of the uh, great things about being a karate teacher, I've, I've been teaching kids, youths, and, and uh, of all ages for years, and one of the things we teach them is deportment. Uh, deportment, in other words, how to shake hands, how to look someone in the eye when you talk to them, uh, how to smile when you're, when you're happy and engaging with somebody who's 
you know, whether it's a teacher or, uh, or, or a possible employer. So I think we can help uh, youth by, by teaching those old-fashioned life skills. Um, I'd love to see us uh, teaching regular courses in media, uh, media savvy, media criticism, uh, I think that, that, that there's such a swamp of media out there right now that kids are exposed to that they need uh, uh, help in deciphering that. Uh, I would like to see uh, classes in critical thinking uh, on, the, on the curriculums of every school, and not just in high school, but starting in grade school, um, and, um, um, and, and classes in the importance of citizenship. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Okay, the next question I have here. Recently, photos of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in a blackface surface sending a shocking reminder to Canadians that despite appearances and eloquent words about diversity, I ignore diversity, ignores ignorance of racist racism continues. What do you have to say about the existence of racism in Canada today? Have I got that clear? Read it again or Okay, everybody good? Okay. Sure, Zali. Uh, so, unfortunately, racism does still exist in this country, but as far as I'm concerned, it has no place. Uh, you know, we, we, and I'm not talking about being politically correct. I'm just talking about if you treat everybody with the golden rule how you expect to be treated yourself, everything's fine. I personally don't care what your religion, what your color is. My daughter's of mixed ethnicity. Uh, she's a, I guess, technically a quarter Jamaican, and, and I've been all over this great country, or this globe, I should say, over 30 different countries. I've served in multiple countries with multiple religions. Everybody on, on this planet has different beliefs, but ultimately they just want to, you know, uh, live in peace, have their kids grow up healthy, and with a better opportunity than they did themselves. So I, bottom line, racism has no place in Canada. Okay, Chris? I don't think I can say that any better than Alex, and I think everybody here is going to echo the same thing. Racism just does not belong here. It has reared its ugly head in our local communities, especially in Own Sound recently. But we just got to stand in solidarity with the people that are being discriminated against. We got to show up and tell them that, you know, we're here for you, we support you, and that this doesn't belong in our, in our area and in our country. Thank you. All right. Uh, racism in Canada, it still exists. Unfortunately, I think there's, there's always going to be racist elements in every country and in every place. But part of the problem I think we're seeing lately is um, that social media allows an outlet and allows very, a very small minority of people to have a much bigger footprint than they otherwise would have. And of course, there was some um, a lot of talk in Owen Sound with the with the repeated um, application of stickers of various kinds around the city. And each of the candidates here actually was asked what they thought about it, and everybody responded in a positive way. And I just want to echo the same actual solution to the problem that I offered on the website when I wrote it. When I was a young person, I watched a movie called American History X. Has anyone seen it? Raise your hand if you have. It's a fantastic movie. And my suggestion is Put that into the curriculum in high schools, and anybody that's having inklings of going down that road will learn why it's a bad idea. Okay. 
Daniel? So sometimes these easy questions are hard because you don't want to get up and say the exact same thing that everybody said. Clearly, racism has no place in Canada. And we have seen examples recently within Owen Sound that are very, very troubling. Yeah, thank you. And what I think we all need to do is we need to look around just a little bit more. When When those stickers were first... Um, brought to my attention, I thought that maybe they were skateboard or maybe there was a new club in town. It never really occurred to me what they could be. But the reality of the situation is we need to look at everything and we need to ask ourselves what what is going around us and is this what we want to continue? Is this the way that we want to move forward within our communities, within our neighborhoods? And if there are things out there that you see that you feel are incorrect, everybody must speak up about those things. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, Michael? So I, I agree with everything uh, that, that uh, much of what has been said, um, and I would I would I would add that it's it's the responsibility of political leaders to model anti-racism. In other words, it's not good enough just to say I'm against racism. I think racism is bad. Leaders have an effect on how other people feel, emboldened or not emboldened, to act out their racist tendencies. You know, and, and it, I think we all have to uh, acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is that often, lately, the discussion of immigration has racist overtones. That's just a reality. And um, there, there has been in this country for decades a bipartisan consensus that immigration was a good thing for the country, good for Canada, good for our community, and it still is. The Conservative Party... Uh, when Jason Kenney was the multiculturalism minister, really, really pushed that hard. And I would love to see all our political parties, including the Conservative Party and the People's Party, rejoin that national consensus. So first I'll deal with the blackface issue directly. And like it or not, Trudeau does have a constitutionally protected right to make an ass of himself. And... We equally have a constitutionally protected right to call him on it. Now, delving back into racism, it's obvious it has no place. Uh, I guess six for six, so why not keep swinging? But racism will only exist for as long as we allow it to exist. If we keep calling every little thing a racist interaction, eventually the term racism gets watered down and diluted to the point where it doesn't mean anything anymore. So we need a clear definition on what is and what isn't racism. We need that worded into the Constitution under free speech and that all speech should be protected speech until it advocates for violence or racial superiority of any kind. Thank you. Okay, the next one I have here, those deemed to be at greater risk of violence, uh, whether it's homeless, sex workers, or minorities, are often ignored by law enforcement, leading to more crimes committed against them. What will your party do to change this? That's quite a wordy. 
those deemed to be at greater risk of violence, whether it be homeless work people, sex workers, or minorities, are often ignored by law enforcement, leading to more crimes committed against them. What will your party do to change this? Okay, the first one would be Alex. No, sorry, I guess Chris rather. Sorry, Chris. Well, law protection is more of a provincial situation. Like that's why we have the OPP. It's Ontario Provincial Police. So, what the federal government would have to do is provide some laws and supports to the provincial, some guidelines, so that and beef up the laws so that the provincially they can enforce them better to protect those people. Plus, we got to look at mental health supports. Those people are precarious for a reason. There's not proper mental health supports. There's not enough supports around for them to go to. So federally, the one thing we can do to help address this immediately is provide more mental health supports, more support groups, put some money into it, give these people some places to go so they're not on the streets and they're not vulnerable. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, say Bill. Yeah, this question has come up before, and, and we've kind of carved it up the same way, where a big piece of the homelessness issue is uh, mental health related. And uh, I really think for anybody that's old enough, you can remember when um, there was a lot more in-treatment uh, facilities in the province of Ontario for people. Unfortunately, it's a provincial concern, so there is limited um, opportunities for the federal government to intervene other than advocating uh, f for those people who should be seeking adequate care. I, I agree with you. Okay. Good. Thanks, Bill. Danielle? So we have, we have talked about this um, before, and I think one of the things we need to do is stop uh, treating addiction like it's a crime. Um, Greens also would uh, uh, put forward a mental health strategy. Um, so we're calling for a mental health strategy and suicide prevention strategy to address, among other things, the growing anxieties plaguing Canadians regarding inequality and affordability. We talked earlier about uh, the housing crisis and how it is um, one of the contributors to the homeless situation. So it, it isn't, there's no one answer within 60 seconds that I can get up and uh, and explain to you in Voila, we fixed the problem. But what we need to do is we need to look at the people as people and not as criminals. Thank you. Thanks, Danielle. Michael. I completely agree with Danielle on the approach to addiction. Uh, it should be treated as an illness, not as, not as a, a moral crime. Um, I would also say that, you know, helping the vulnerable... Uh, as Danielle also said, you know, you help with housing, you help with pharmacare, you help with the tax cut, you help with education, you help with access to a family doctor, you help with home care, you help and, and, and you, you invest in mental health. And over time, these problems get, 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 you know, become, uh, become, uh, they're never going to go away, but it is a way to deal with them. And I would add, that the last thing vulnerable populations need is to have their public services cut the way the Doug Ford government is doing right now. Thanks, Mike. Well, I find myself agreeing with the Liberals, the NDP, and the Green, 
So something is clearly afoot. <laughs> we need to treat drug addiction as a medical issue, not a criminal issue. This is painfully obvious. Why are we locking somebody up in prison, paying 120000 a year to keep them locked up, when their only real crime is trying to make themselves happy? And sex work should be totally decriminalized. Any consensual act between two consenting adults is nobody's business but their own. Certainly not mine, yours, or the government's. And tidying up the zoning laws would help the housing crisis mitigate itself. So would expanding access to rental units by abolishing rent controls. This is proven to work in the high-value markets such as Toronto. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Alex. You get the final one. Yeah, so I'm not going to disagree with much that, that's been said so far. I mean, especially on the mental health and addiction, and we, and we need to put support into those. But I think we need to tackle poverty. We need to get to the root causes of what are allowing these vulnerable people uh, to be susceptible in the first place. So let's go after the poverty. It goes back to education. It goes back to ways we can help them out. But I think more importantly, where a lot of that violence is coming from is due, due to the drugs and the crime. So I'm not talking to, to dealing with the people that actually have the addictions. Well, let's go after those criminals. And, and I know the Conservative Party is very crystal clear. We need to invest more money into our border services so we can stop the illegal black market of things like handguns coming across our border. We need to invest into police task forces so they can go after those criminals. And instead of just giving them a fine or a reprimand, uh, which has been passed just recently in the last few years, let's actually put them away uh, in jail, those hard criminals that are, are breaking the law. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Okay, there's an old saying goes, the mind can only uh, absorb what the bottom can endure. And I think we've maybe come to that stage tonight. We've had a lot of good input from the audience, and you've been a tremendous audience here tonight. I really appreciate it. Good to see so many people here. And I have to, from my personal perspective, I have to compliment the candidates. Every one of you have done an outstanding job uh, to uh, address the questions from the floor. I think we should give them a really good round of applause. As I think back, you're one of the best group of candidates I think I've ever heard in one night like this. So uh, you, hats off to you. <laughs> also, I want to, just before I turn back to Stuart, I want to thank the communications team here tonight for your support and a great job you've done. This is a terrible building to hear in. The acoustics are not usually good, and I, I hope everybody can hear okay. Uh, did a great job, guys, there, and uh, keep up the good work. And I'm going to turn it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, candidates. Thanks, citizens, for coming out. I think it's been a great evening, and they, they were well prepared. They handled uh, the hard questions from the audience as well. Thank you for doing that. I really appreciate you all coming. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce is proud to be the publisher of a a podcast called In Grey Highlands this week. Tomorrow, this conversation tonight will be available on our podcast in Grey Highlands this week. Look for it on the Chamber website or all, go to your iPhone and look up in Grey Highlands this week. We're proud to be supportive of 
this concept. We also have Greg, who's with our cultural channel. He'll be pushing the information out tomorrow as well through the cultural channel. Look at the Gray Highlands Library website to get your information. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you again.